everybody coming to the session of the uh, sort of the finance committee. Uh, the apologies I've received so far are just for Jim Wells, so Philip McGuigan, and obviously for Philip, uh, Philip as well. Members aware of any other apologies? Alicia Gemma, has Philip given you any delegated authority to uh, vote in there on his behalf? He has, yes. Okay. Philip has given me authority, yeah, okay. and um, he should be joining the meeting later on. Okay, thanks very much indeed. Uh, are there any declarations of interest? I have one declaration of interest in agenda item 9.4 and 9.5, which is ministerial direction on correspondence. Uh, if we move on to item number three, chairperson's business. Uh, first of all, I would like to uh, send our uh, best regards to Philip and hope he's recovered. And uh, I was uh, quite sad to see that he was taken on well, but I'm glad he seems to be recovering. And I look forward to seeing him uh, later on during the session today and passing on my regards to him directly if he's here. But if not, can I either ask Melissa or Gemma to pass on my regards to Philip and I'll try and contact him offline later on. Well done. Thank you. Okay, on behalf of the committee, I wish to formally welcome our de deputy chairperson. He's not here. Uh, Keith Buchanan to the committee. Keith did, of course, attend last week's concurrent meeting, but this is the first opportunity for the committee to formally welcome the new deputy chairperson. Are we agreed that I will formally greet him when he arrives? I agreed. Okay. Move on to the House of Lords Northern Ireland Protocol Subcommittee. The committee has advised that, as previously agreed, I met with Lord Jay on behalf of the committee on the 11th of June to discuss matters arising related to the protocol. This introductory meeting was quite wide-ranging, including issues which have been highlighted previously, including the absence of a locus point for MLAs. Are we content to note? No. Thank you. Great. Content to uh, the chair for, I don't know if it's an interest to declare, but I, uh, my party submitted evidence, as I'm sure yours did. I think I know, I know yours did, and other parties did, to the House of Lords Committee. Yep. Okay. Thank you for that. Uh, June, June monitoring. Uh, next item is June monitoring. Members, as you are aware, there has been considerable press speculation in respect to the role of the First Minister. It is understood that the Executive met last week and considered important COVID restrictions. It is further understood that the Executive is to meet shortly in order to consider, amongst other things, the outcome of June monitoring round. The Minister has previously advised in some detail of considerable sums in excess of around about $700 million which were to be allocated for COVID and other purposes, which appeared to be waiting formal executive sign-off as part of the June monitoring. Uh, members, are we content to write to the Department seeking clarity on whether June mon monitoring is indeed to be considered by the executive shortly and on the allocations that are awaiting executive sign-off and whether these allocations can be made if the executive does not meet? Are we agreed? Great. Draft minutes of the proceedings for the 9th and the 16th of June. The draft minutes of the Finance Committee meeting on the 9th of June are at page 7. Members, are we content that the draft minutes of on the 9th of June are an accurate record of the proceedings? Are we agreed? Agreed. Great. Draft minutes of the concurrent committee uh, meeting of the 16th of June are at page 3 of the tabled items. Are members content that the draft minutes of the 16th of June 2021 are an accurate record of the proceedings? Is that agreed? Agreed. Agreed. Matters arising, there are no matters arising. Uh, if we move on to the next item, uh, this will be on sort of the Ulster University Economic Policy Centre for Business Rates Reform. Can I invite Gareth and Ian to come in on Starleaf? Is he hopefully? Yeah. Hi, Gareth. Hi, Owen. 
Hi, Gareth. Good afternoon. Have we got all any? Yup. Apologies, Gareth. We've been having a few technical snags today. One's muted. He's muted. Have you muted him? I think, Owen, you may have muted yourself. Oh, there you go. Yeah, Hi, Owen. Thank you. Hi, Gareth Owen. You're like good friends. We seem to see quite a lot of you, and we've been delighted, we've been delighted you're here. Uh, just for the briefing, we're receiving oral evidence on COVID recovery and the business rates reform. Uh, Gareth and Owen don't need to sort of introduce them, but obviously the director of the Ulster University Economic Policy Centre and Owen's the senior economist. Uh, the following papers are relevant. The Clark's briefing paper at page 22, briefing paper from the University of Ulster at page 29, and recent correspondence from the Department in respect of the 2019 rate review, page 10, and table papers, which is worth a quick read. Uh, the session is being recorded by Hansard. Uh, Gareth, Owen, over to you. Uh, good afternoon, Chair, and, and thank you for the opportunity to provide evidence to, to your committee again this afternoon. Uh, this time I'm using the rate system to support uh, COVID recovery and then also to consider views on suppose, more fundamental reform to non-domestic rates. Um, now, you already have my uh, evidence paper that, that we submitted, which sets out the detail of our, our thoughts, but as requested, I want to uh, give a very high-level overview of the key points for just a few minutes before allowing, obviously, most of the time for, for questions from you and your committee. Um, it'll just be me uh, making um, initial comments, um, and, and then we'll move straight into the questions. So, firstly, I want to turn to supporting uh, COVID recovery. Now, this committee will be aware I provided advice to the Minister previously on targeting rates relief to those sectors in, in most need and subsequently provided evidence to, to your committee. Now, we consulted with a range of businesses and, and representative bodies while conducting uh, follow-up research and find that the non-domestic rates relief was a critical uh, component of the overall support package put in place. And many uh, indicated they simply would have ceased trading if the rates relief hadn't been granted. So, in terms of using rates as part of the recovery strategy, I think it's important to recognise that rates is first and foremost a means for raising revenue rather than uh, an economic development tool. So, therefore, the most effective short-term support is to continue to maintain uh, a reduced burden, at least until uh, restrictions are, are lifted. Um, but relief should be targeted only for as long as is necessary. Um, and it's also clear, important to be clear uh, about your objective in terms of offering relief. So is the objective survival or is the objective recovery? And as a policy measure, rates relief is primarily a survival tool. So therefore, other policy measures uh, will be required to encourage economic recovery. And, and furthermore, as, as sectors enter the recovery phase, the case for maintaining rates relief beyond March 2022 is reduced. And I think we should also recognise that individual sectors will not necessarily enter their recovery phase at the same time. So, for example, as restrictions lift further in the coming weeks, some sectors will be entering their recovery phase shortly. However, uh, longer term implications, for example, in the aerospace sector, would suggest its recovery phase may still be, be some way off and survival supports may still be required. Uh, March 2022. But using uh, the rate system 
to, to support economic recovery would require more fundamental reform. Um, and that's obviously more, more difficult to implement in the short term, which then brings me into the second area that uh, we were asked to consider, which was longer term proposals for, for fundamental reform uh, to, to non-domestic rates. Um, now, the current non-domestic rating system in Northern Ireland has many critics and uh, there are frequent calls that it's not fit for purpose. Um, but people who are making those calls are most likely coming from the perspective that their own rates bill is, is too high. So it's important that calls for fundamental reform are not confused with calls from one interest group to reduce the tax burden for their particular constituency and increase it for another group. Um, now I'll go in or I'll go through very briefly some of the, the key points of our efforts relating to more fundamental reform. First point is our conclusion uh, is that a property tax should be retained, which I suppose is, is quite quite fundamental. Um, as I said, it's, it's frequently stated the rating system is flawed and, and should be abolished. We think at a time when when governments are coming under increased pressure to and, and provide additional support, um, and there's limited evidence of a more effective alternative tax moving away from a long-established form of taxation such as rates would not be appropriate. And separately, having a broad range of taxes is generally a good thing from a, both a, a government perspective and a society perspective, as it ensures that the tax burden is not necessarily concentrated on a relatively small number of, of groups. I think the second point that we would make then is just uh, to incentivise investment, and, and that is, is criticisms of, of um, the current system. The current approach penalises tenants and, and landlords for investing in their properties. So rather than offering relief to specific groups or sectors indefinitely, consideration could be given to, given to offering time-limited incentives to those who make significant investment in, in their premises. And that could either be a new build or uh, a, a significant uh, upgrade. Uh, the third point I want to make then is just we think there's certainly merit in reviewing all the reliefs um, that, that are available. Um, Non-domestic rates relief cost £225 million in, in the last financial year, and that's for a tax that, oh, well, I say only, only raised £640 million. Um, and that include, or excludes sorry, agriculture and land and buildings, which has, has not been valued. Now, the need for reliefs on, on this scale suggests a rates charge that is too high for, for some sectors, which in turn then puts a greater burden on, on other uh, rate pairs. And there may be a strong rationale for the existence of individual reliefs, but we think it's only by considering reliefs in the round uh, against the executive's overall policy intentions that a reasonable assessment could be made on the benefit of each individual relief. Now, I do want to just make one comment on industrial derating relief. Now, there remains strong arguments both for and against the, the abolition of um, industrial derating relief. It was abolished in England and Wales in 1963. It was phased out in Scotland by, by 1999, or sorry, 1995. And then in the early 2000s, direct rural ministers made the decision to start to phase out industrial tea rating in Northern Ireland. But obviously, as, as you know, that wasn't uh, taken forward. And whilst manufacturing remains an important 
a very important sector for the Northern Ireland economy. It's smaller now in relative terms than back in the 1920s when relief was, was first introduced. And economic development strategies are increasingly focusing on attracting high value added professional services, ICT businesses. So the current system raises questions in the types of businesses governments are seeking to incentivize. Um, now, in support of the relief, and this is also very important, the size of industrial premises results in rate spills being higher. Um, Northern Ireland has higher energy costs. It's geographic location results in higher transport costs for both import, uh, inputs and outputs. So IDR, uh, industrial de-rating, is an important uh, tool in creating a level playing field for local uh, manufacturers. And furthermore, a stable taxation policy is important to provide long-term certainty for, for local and, and international investors. So as I said, in terms of industrial de-rating, it is very complex and there are strong arguments on, on both sides. The fourth point I want to make then just is that there is scope to shift the burden, some of the burden, at least from non-domestic to domestic rate pairs. Our paper shows that the total non-domestic rate poundages have a much broader range in Northern Ireland. And although the lower boundary is now similar to that in other parts of the UK, the upper boundary is, is, is higher. Um, in contrast, domestic rates is significantly lower in, in Northern Ireland. And that becomes even more stark when, when you consider that water charges also um, do, not, do not apply here. Um, now, there has been some movement to making... significantly lower? Could you give us yes. a quantum of that? So, um, let me just bring my, uh, my paper up. Um, the average rate spill uh, in... Um, the domestic rate spill in, in Northern Ireland is £1,036. Um, the average rate, if, if we take a, a region uh, in the UK that's similar economically to Northern Ireland, which is Wales, uh, it's, it has the highest average domestic rates bill, which is what, now this is including water and, and sewage bills of uh, £1,952. Uh, so the, you're, you're comparing a rates bill of a, in Northern Ireland of £1,000 approximately to a rates bill in Wales of just over £1,500 and then a water bill of, of uh, just over £400. So you can see on table four of, of, the, of our paper uh, the, the, the difference of uh, scale there. Yep. Okay. So um, in the, the next point then, was, yeah, there has been some movement to make the shifting of, of that uh, burden easier in, in recent times where councils have been given the flexibility to set domestic and non-domestic rates independently. So they could now choose to set the domestic rate at a higher level if, if that's what they wanted to do at a local level. Um, in addition, the executive could put a cap on non -domestic, the non-domestic district rate, and over time then the burden uh, could shift. So there's policy tools there now at a local level that, wasn't, that have only been introduced very recently. Um, the fifth point that we would make then is that regular and frequent revaluations uh, re uh, would have a number of benefits. Um, it would increase the fairness as, as the tax liability is, is based on a current rather than a dated rental value. 
Uh, it means that one group isn't benefiting at the expense of another. And also importantly, it, it minimizes the potential for significant changes to individual rates bills whenever revaluations are carried out. Uh, now, there is a consensus view sorry, from previous consultations that were undertaken that revaluation should be undertaken every three years. I think just last week, about an hour before I hit send on, our, on the on the paper, it was um, it, it was announced that the minister um, was going to bring through reval twenty twenty three, and that is obviously a welcome uh, announcement following on from the last revaluation exercise in, in twenty twenty. Um, yeah, well, getting close to the final sixth point, just devolving uh, relief powers to individual councils. I think we, we believe consideration should be given uh, to granting councils the power to offer reliefs within their council area to encourage uh, economic development activity. Now, this does raise questions over who would administer these reliefs, who would it, and who would meet the cost of, of that administration. And in addition, in the interest of fairness, any devolved relief should only relate to the district rate component and the cost in, in the form of uh, lower revenue should be met in full by the council offering uh, that uh, relief. Uh, my penultimate point then, broadening the tax base, broadening the tax base through either making more people or businesses eligible for rates or, or, or reducing reliefs and or raising other taxes would be a way to, to reduce the burden for, for many rate payers, albeit you're, you're, you're moving it elsewhere. Now, raising other taxes would currently fall outside the scope of devolved powers, but with the establishment, obviously, of the new independent fiscal council, that situation uh, could change. And then my, my final point, Chair, is we considered a range of other uh, proposals in our paper, uh, I suppose that could be considered more radical, such as moving to uh, tax based on ability to pay, taxing ownership rather than occupation, uh, switching to capital value rather than rental value, and introducing a land value tax. And, and many of those taxes or approaches have benefits in theory, but there are also significant implementation issues, uh, which and, and there, there isn't evidence to suggest that moving in that direction uh, would, would outweigh the benefits would outweigh the, the costs. So Chair, I will conclude with uh, those comments and then happy to uh, take questions from, from you and your committee. Yeah, just a couple of ones and thanks very much indeed, Gareth, again as usual. Um, sort of one of the issues obviously in <clears throat> Welsh Water is a mutualised company. So obviously the sort of the water uh, charge that is part of the Welsh overall rate structure, around about three hundred and fifty to three hundred and sixty pounds, I think, is sort of roughly where their sort of water charge comes into. What is that in comparison with sort of what? And I, I don't have the top of my head at the moment, but what is the current sort of water charge that is made by the sort of the uh, English water utilities like Seven Water and the rest of it in comparison? Uh, again, my that report. So the, the numbers that I have, I've just got average water bills for England and Wales, which is four hundred and eight pounds. So you, you, I think you had indicated yeah. um, in, in Wales it was maybe slightly lower, just in the three sixty, three seventy. Uh, it's across England and Wales. It's it's uh, averages four hundred pounds uh, per domestic bill. It's slightly lower in Scotland. It's three hundred and eighty-three in Scotland are the numbers that I um, have. Yeah, it's, it's for us. It's obviously the question of sort of the, the Welsh model, but being a mutualised um, 
uh, water and waste supplier as opposed to sort of the more commercialised option within England to look at that. But are there any indication that we get better services, uh, bearing in mind that sort of in Northern Ireland sort of businesses pay higher rates? Do we get better services for what we get or do they just get charged more? Has there been any indications of that? So when we haven't looked at, in, in terms of you know, this, looking at a mechanism to raise revenue, we didn't start to undertake an assessment of the, the quality or satisfaction of services uh, that, that businesses would receive from a local government in Northern Ireland compared to other parts of the UK or, or down south for that matter. Um, so we, we don't have uh, that we don't have that information uh, to hand. My sense for what it's worth is that it's probably broadly similar across these islands in terms of levels of satisfaction. Yeah. Okay. Nobody likes paying taxes. <laughs> Sorry, Keith, and welcome. And may I formally welcome you to your first formal session Thank as you. the vice chair of the uh, finance. Thank you very committee. much, chair. I, I noticed in the brief that I, I missed that bit. I apologise. <laughs> <laughs> we were welcoming you. I was at Gordon's funeral, so I apologise. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. No, so, so and I, I wanted to be here as, and want to be in both places. Uh, thank you, Gareth, for that presentation. Apologies, I missed the start of that. My question, just a small bit on vacant properties. I don't know why you looked in detail. I'm talking about basically agricultural vehicle prop vacant properties where a farmer has built a new house, for example, and there's an old house sitting in his farmyard. What relief does he get on that, or is he paying full rates on that? Let's call it a vacant property, but ultimately livable. Um, again, the, the, the focus of um, of our, our work, I, I think, at the at the moment, our focus of our work was on non-domestic rates. I should I should point that out. Uh, in terms of a vacant um, agricultural residence. Um, I believe that he may uh, be eligible for relief on that, but that I'm, I'm not sure. Owen, would you have any? Um... Yeah, I suppose it, it's a good question. I mean, know on the you know on the sort of outbuildings, if you want to call the the, the properties that on the farm that are in use for agricultural use, there's a there's a reliefs there um, on those on the kind of business rate side. Um, in terms of a domestic. So let's say it's a replacement dwelling and there's the old dwelling is still there. Um, there as far as I, I know, unless you're kind of making a special case, there, there would be domestic rates due on on that, whether it's, you know, whether it's in in use or not. That's my understanding. Yeah, and, that, Which, and that's, that's obviously a strain on the agricultural industry, you know, because of a second house, you know, the house yeah. is old, they built a new house, you know the kind of scenario. And then second question, if I may, Chair, just on, uh, you looked at obviously the other three nations or four nations in total in, in the UK. What's the Republic of Ireland like? And you talked about the figure of 1,500-odd for Wales, whether well, that's our rates or their rates and water combined. So what's the, the Republic of Ireland like in that comparison? Have you any idea of that? Again, Chair, that, that wasn't in, in uh, the, the research that, that we did, but it can be information we can easily um, find can. and provide to the committee. Can you provide us Yeah, I can maybe come in on, on that. I think um, you're looking at a you're looking at a broad broadband here. That's the first thing to say in terms of from one council area to another in the south. And from last time I looked at it, you're looking at a band of between 600 euro, um, you know, 
in one as a commercial rate in one council area up to fifteen hundred euro in another. So there's a um, there seems to me to be a, a, a much broader um, setting of the you know use of poundage and setting of the rates right across the council areas. Um, I think the average for the last I looked at it, the the average was in around the sort of eleven hundred um, euro, seeing the average bill uh, as a commercial rates bill um, south of the border. Yeah. And then a, a, on a water charge on top of that, I presume. And um, well, your commercial, if you like, your your water charge on top of that would be another five or six hundred euros generally um, for for a business. Obviously, it's more, you know, business use, but that would be the average. So currently, it's not a dear place to live here, based on rates and water charges. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. <laughs> okay, thanks, Chair. Okay, thanks very much, today. Matthew. Thank you very much. Um, uh, in longer in in terms of the longer term economic patterns, um, uh, given the um, uh, given the changes to um, uh, uh, economic behaviour, um, including around retail, um, from the and it's quite early to say, it's very early to say, but what early emerging signs are you seeing in terms of the structural shift? In commercial property that might impact on the rates base. Yeah, I mean, there certainly have been. You're right. The pandemic has accelerated some trends and and reversed uh, others. Um, in, in terms of trends that it has accelerated, you mentioned retail there. Um, prior to the, the pandemic, uh, in in 2019. Um, it, it, from 2007 to 2019, the proportion of overall spending uh, online increased from 3% in 2007 8 to 19% in, in 2019. That jumped from 19% to 28% then in, in 2020, primarily as a result of, of lockdown. So that will have changed lots of, lots of behaviours. And um, th that trend, whilst obviously the acceleration won't continue, but that trend from uh, shopping in, in physical stores to increased online shopping is likely uh, to to continue. Now, that's not to say there is that there won't be demand for shopping in physical stores moving forward. Uh, there will. Um, but that, that there would have been people who would have been very resistant to online shopping before who have through necessity have been forced to change behavior so that is that's one challenge for the high street we have to remember as well that the uh, the high street was facing challenges pre-covid uh, so from the online threat so, so that has been accelerated there is also um, quite a lot of um, yeah, quite a lot of time spent and then words written about the death of the office or the end of the office um, and you know, when we think about um, large professional services firms, ICT firms etc, they tend to locate in relatively expensive offices in our towns and, and city centres and there was a lot of speculation that they would um, they could significantly reduce their cost by encouraging their staff to, to continue to work from home even post lockdown. Um, now, KPMG uh, do a, a chief executive pulse survey, and uh, it's a few months, a couple of months ago now, I think in, uh, in March, 
um, they asked CEOs what, what proportion were considering uh, reducing their office footprint and, and restructuring where, where their staff would work. And I think it was around 20% of 17%, 17 to 20% in that survey in March this year said that they were considering reducing their, their office footprint. So that's, that's quite a big number. But they asked, uh, KPMG asked the same question in August last year, and 69% uh, of, of CEOs uh, said that they were considering reducing their office footprint in August. And so there has been a change in, um, in, in emphasis and focus on um, the importance of the office and, and being in the same physical proximity with your work colleagues, both from a staff management point of view, but also from a staff development point of view, um, is, is, is being recognised as increasingly important. And staff being, your concerns around staff being isolated and, and working from home um, isn't good for their professional development and, and their, their welfare. So the, there will be, I think, a, a move to this hybrid model, as it's referred to from an office perspective, but perhaps just not on the same scale as uh, we would have been talking about six or nine months ago. So I think that in, in terms of the, the structures of our, our, our towns and city centres, office footprint likely to remain broadly similar, retail likely to contract, but uh, slowly and over a long, uh, relatively long time scale. I think the big scope for growth in, in the space for our uh, uh, towns and, and city centres is around retail, or sorry, is around residential uh, development, uh, where for historic reasons, you know, the, our, our towns and city centres have relatively low residential population. Um, as as we move forward, you know, in the, in the coming decade, uh, moves to increase the residential population. Uh, could replace the, the footprint maybe lost by by retail. And when we look at something like Belfast City Council's, uh, you know, the Belfast Agenda, looking at significantly increasing the residential population over the next uh, decade. Okay, and on the you mentioned the seventeen to twenty percent we're now considering reducing office space. That's when was that, is that in the last month or two that figures from? So that that was in March. In March. That's in March this year. Uh, no, I should point out that's a UK-wide survey. UK-wide, um, yeah, no, it's still useful. To, and that's down from the equivalent survey had 69% making the same sta statement last year. But that's still, so, I mean, if we have 20%, if a disproportionate amount of, like, relative to the rest of the UK, a disproportionate um, amount of our rates revenue comes from non-domestic uh, properties, and uh, we see a considerable portion of those, um, uh, and we hope an increasing proportion of those, you know, if we're attracting services jobs, uh, higher higher end ones ideally are going to be in that seventy, or are going to be um, uh, are going to be office space. That's still a, that. If it was, if for the sake of argument, it was a ten percent, if ten percent of the professional services firms or services firms more generally office. Or I'm being too specific. If 10% of um, uh, CEOs uh, uh, or um, chief property officers in operating significant office 
real estate in Belfast decided to reduce their um, office space by, say, between 10 to 20 percent, that would be a material reduction in our rate space in Belfast. Um, yes, but uh, it, it would suggest a slight levelling off in, in the increased demand. Um, I think the office market though was, was robust prior to uh, COVID and as we seek to um, attract increased levels of as you say, professional services, ICT type businesses in Northern Ireland, that demand will continue to grow over the long term. I'm, it, it wouldn't be a primary concern of mine. I think where it's more likely to be an impact is firms may take longer to expand their existing office space use rather than look to significantly downsize what they have at the moment. That would be my sense. Okay. Maybe I could come in there. Um... To, to to that question, I mean, I think the the other factor or the other thing to kind of consider here is um, a shifting use across existing office space. So I think one thing that you're finding from from quite a lot of towns and cities is that the the kind of the new, if you like, grade A office space, there's still considerable demand for that, um, even with remote working being a factor. It it may be that you know. The older office space that needs a kind of refit will need to be done for to a fairly high spec to attract um, some of that investment in. So there, there may be pressure there. Um, but what's interesting, just backing up what Gareth had said there, um, one thing I would kind of watch out is the the real estate investment trusts, the commercial ones of those. They were marked down quite significantly um, up until the end of twenty twenty in terms of the market prices for those. Um, they've come back quite strongly since then, which could be a straw in the wind to uh, the idea that you know it's not going to be too much of a fall off in terms of um, commercial property prices um, being paid, or at least demand for for that space. Um, perhaps to the to the extent that was was feared last year when we were in the, the midst of the pandemic. Okay, you've said that's very helpful. You've said um, that the uh, well, actually, before you go on with that, I've got one, one question just on what you've said, which is, does that, so the reval exercise, which is, will be starting soon, but will be going on for a significant period of time, would you have any concerns that the volatility of, I mean, you've just, what you've just described is a volatile prop real estate, commercial real estate market, because the market is reacting to a, you know, a completely unprecedented event. Uh, rates are now increasing in value, having effectively plummeted last year um does that make reva a revaluation exercise inherently just a challenge logistically because there, there's a, such a significant degree of volatility I, my, perhaps i will have, will have a view on this but my sense is that you know, it's i know the, the reval exercise was announced uh last week it's for 2023 and i think what the department and the minister was trying to do was uh, wanting to try to have as regular uh, a revaluation as possible, but similarly trying to achieve a balance with waiting until 2023 and values in 2023 when you would hope the market would have settled and returned to something closer to a new normal. And so the volatility that would have been experienced 
uh, certainly last year and, and into this year, would the anticipation, I think, uh, from would be that that would have washed up in the system by the time 2023 comes around. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. And then last question is uh, around one of the uh, options um, you've mentioned in terms of uh, replacing or reforming um, our rate system, and this has obviously been talked about before, is it the introduction of a new online sales tax, not online sales tax, an online tax that reflects the fact that um, tech companies do not, that's obviously a, uh, a much bigger reform. It's beyond currently beyond the powers of um, the Northern Ireland executive. Is it something you think that the fiscal commission should look at, or or should they be looking? Uh, should they be more modest in terms of how they uh, approach these questions? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, many, not only is it beyond the powers of I think of of the. Northern Ireland devolved administration. Uh, I think a lot of national governments would suggest that it's it's beyond their power to act independently, and and so the uh, online and digital taxes, and uh, I think we saw this even at, at the G seven yeah. discussions uh, are, um, are are taxes that require international um, collaboration. Um, I, I wouldn't want to set the terms. For the, the the fiscal commission, certainly you could seek their views, um, uh, but I, I think that it, it's something that no one government can can do effectively operating on an independent basis. So it would be uh, something that would require collaboration, and it may even be something that the executive and the assembly would choose to support. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Bruce. Okay, thanks, Gemma. Yeah, thanks, Chair. Thanks, Gareth and Owen as well. I just have one question, and I'm going to take it away from rates. Um, in your survey of the sectors in hospitality, we all know that there's an issue with getting staff. Um, and in the survey, it says that they had a reliance on migrant labour, many of whom have now left the north. Do you obviously? So is this why there is a shortage of staff? And do we have any ideas as to why? They they've left the north. Right. <laughs> so um, yeah, I mean, one of the things that we have found is, and I suppose this this goes to the the, the broader economic uh, situation. It's that the labour market in general has has been more resilient than than many of us ha had expected, and there is a general expectation that in in terms of uh, in, in terms of furlough, um, most people who have been placed on furlough will return to their employers, and those that who do not return to their current employer will be able to move into um, and, and find uh, jobs in, in, in another with either another employer in another sector. And you're right; the anecdotal evidence uh, that, that we're seeing in, and, and there's survey evidence now coming through. That in areas like hospitality, uh, filling those posts, filling a lot of the posts is, is becoming a real challenge. Um, the, wh why did migrant labour um, go home uh, at the outbreak of the... I, I don't know the answer to that. We, we, haven't, uh, we haven't conducted a survey of, of, um, of, of migrants and their rationale. Um, I, I suspect there was a, a, an element of... 
if they're going to be if they knew they were not going to be working for a period of time and a lot of migrants come here to work uh, so if you're not going to be working for an extended period of time then go back to, to be with your family um, i think the question maybe more appropriate to where we are now is well, why are they not coming back <laughs> and so uh, and, and what can we do to to attract them back and, and that, that, that may help to uh, alleviate any of the vacancies or, or shortages that, that we have. Yeah, thank you. And I think, I don't know who said on the committee there, but the, the whispered Brexit, and that's what I, that was, that was my thought as well. And we're doing work on the EUSS um, scheme, you know, because the deadline's come up now on the 30th of June. So, yeah, the question is why are they not coming back? Um, that's very that, that's helpful. Thanks, Gareth. That's all my questions, Chair. Okay, thanks, Gemma. Thanks very much indeed. Matt? Uh, thanks, William Carth, as well. Uh, you hear me okay? Thanks. So we can. Yep. Um, I, I, I just was noting the domestic and the non domestic rates on the income uh, from your report, but thanks very much for it. Uh, I noticed that domestic properties and then non domestic properties, the burden of rates is probably on each individual business is 50-50 on that. I want to go back to to my own experience again when I was in business and I paid, uh, my rates was worked out, part of it was worked out on turnover. So in your, in, have you looked at the possibility uh, or can you advise on the impact um, in order to make the tax burden on non-domestic sector broader and fairer have you looked at the turnover of each business? Because inland revenue has those, they have those accounts. And then in turn for that, uh, a fairer way would be because each individual, the taxation office knows what each individual earns. And I'm also thinking, is that a fairer way even for uh, the domestic market as well? Because then we look at household incomes. Hello. I'm on mute. Yes, yeah, sorry. Um, the uh, one of the things that we did look at and, and consider was um, you, could, we, could we move to um, a, a system based around ability to pay, um, and what that then does put you down or point you in the direction of some sort of turnover-based tax or a profits-based tax, um, and. One, uh, there, there's obviously uh, on one level there's a, there's a fairness uh, associated um, with that, um, but I suppose there are other arguments as well that would suggest that you know, rent uh, is also a reasonable proxy for ability to pay, and and there is an, an argument that you pay the same rates bill for the same building. Um, is is there's an element of, of fairness in that? Um, there could potentially be, uh, if, if we move to a local tax on profits, for example, that could then duplicate the corporation tax um, uh, issue or, or uh, the existing national tax, and then you've got a more complicated system there. And one of the other issues with be moving to an ability to pay its profits in particular is more volatile. And so you you can find yourself in a situation where your rates income becomes more volatile over uh, a period of uh, you know, from one year to the next, 
and given council reliance that's it's around 80 percent council income coming from uh taxation from rates income uh, given that reliance a volatile tax base would be something that would be very difficult to budget for one year with the next but guys if if we were looking at turnover surely that that will bring in the the sales of the online market which are out there and operating with very very limited overheads yeah. hello you're on mute again i think apologies chair apologies um yes there are um i'm getting feedback sorry i keep putting on mute um the it's not hugely popular at the moment, but there are some rental agreements that are the rental agreements that are based on turnover, and so therefore, if, if that were to increase uh, in in terms of, of their usage, and if you're using a rate system based on that rent, then then that link could could be uh, maintained. So it's it's not something that could be ruled out or, or not considered at, at this point. But it would be quite a significant change from from where we are at the moment. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Pat. Sorry, Gareth, Just before you go. Um, one of the questions, I think it was last week, we had a high street task force and we've been looking at what we do about vacant properties. And I noticed in sort of your, and it's again, it's a perennial question about, you know, what do we do about people who are basically sitting on building and land banks and sit on them for excessive periods of time? And if you look at most of the high streets of our sort of, sort of smaller towns and the rest of it, the amount of empty shops, and we know they've been bought and people are sitting on them for a considerable period of time. But I notice that for every time that you, we've mentioned things like both land banks and sort of vacant properties, you put the counter argument in. Do you think the counter argument still holds? Or bearing in mind, and I think Matthew alluded to it, that we're potentially looking at a sort of a, an evolution or a revolution in sort of how we do working, but how we incentivize the move back into our towns and urban areas and you know if people are going to sit on it and buildings are going to be kept empty how do we incentivize it to such a way that it's moved to something that's more productive i.e move it towards residential or something like that yeah i mean i think the, the, the key has to be to to incentivize investment um, as opposed to incentivizing doing nothing or in the worst case scenario you having having a property property uh, lying vacant. Now, vacant rates relief, vacant property relief currently gives 100% relief uh, for businesses in the first three months of the vacant period. But after that, there's a 50% relief that, that is paid. So they're not paying no, you know, the, the just because uh, when a property is vacant, it's not uh, rates free beyond um, the, the the first three months or after the first three month period. Now, the argument for retaining that relief for or, or extending that relief is that property owners don't have an ability to pay. You know, they're not getting rental income from the property, so they don't have the ability to pay, and that's taking money away that would otherwise be used to reinvest. So that's one argument for extending the relief, but. Um, similarly, I think you, you, 
risk then the, the land banking argument and or, yeah. or the, you, you remove the incentive to get the uh, the, the landlord to, to make the investment required. I think where the vacant property relief is at the moment, they've tried to get this balance. So it's the landlord has been given a three month period to get the property, make whatever investment and upgrades are required uh, to make it marketable again. And then there's a 50% charge uh, beyond that period. I think the, um, and I suppose it goes back to, I think you're right, it was a, a response that I gave to Matthew um, prior was that we will probably move to a greater proportion of uh, urban centres given over to residential development. So then we need to, how do we encourage the landlord for to for change of use if that is the appropriate way to go um, and i think that looking at a system and, and what i had said and, and one of the suggestions we'd make in order to incentivize investment was rather than indefinite long-term reliefs um, you offer an incentive for a period of time after someone's made a significant investment yeah no it's just some sort and the other thing i'm quite conscious of I'm sort of looking what's happened to our friends down in the south and now we're beginning to get to sort of nearly NAMA-like territory again with sort of property speculation. But the fact that lots of venture capital funds are now out buying sort of loan books and property books as well, uh, there is a there is a shift in behaviour that had been dormant for a period of time. And now we're going back in some respects to the bad old days. Now, one of the methods that had been suggested in the past is to deal with this is to bring in some form of... Um, reverse incentivization, if you want to call it that way, or incentivization, if you want to put it another way, on sort of land banks and sort of property banks as well. And I'm just wondering is that because we're now seeing these, that we're, we're, you know, I sense we're going back to the bad old days in some respects. One of the ways to prevent us getting into the sort of the similar sort of speculators market that we had beforehand is to look at sort of alternative forms of taxation in a way that sends a strong message to the market that behave yourselves but more importantly we need to be able to reinvesting in what's going on with our sort of uh, um, sort of high streets and our sort of you know uh, urban areas yeah and, and just to come back on that I think that there there is uh, when we're talking about vacant rates relief it's a, it's important to give consideration to the current economic state so if we are in an economic recession then vacancy is going to rise and try and, and increasing taxes on uh, um, property owners at that point probably isn't the best way to go but if the economy is uh, performing well it's growing fast there's strong demand out there then there's much stronger um, uh, there's greater ability for government to increase uh, taxes on vacant properties because the demand is out there for the landlord to take advantage of if he or she chooses to do. So the current state of the economy and whether the economy is growing or in recession is also an important factor, uh, I believe at least, on, on whether vacant property rates uh, uh, should apply. Okay. Thanks I'd, very much, Eddie. I'd, I'd support that. I mean, I think it's the agility to be able to move around is the key here um, in terms of moving from incentives to reliefs, I think, is, the, is that agility to be able to move back and forth, depending on what cycle, part of the cycle you're in. Um, I think that's an important point to bear in mind. Thanks, Owen, and thanks. Sorry, just a quick one before you come in. Owen, you used the word agility and the word Northern Ireland in the same sentence. 
it's, uh, it's policy as opposed to expectation. <laughs> Matthew. Um, I have quite a specific question, and apologies if it's too specific, but um, in relation to um, avoiding disincentives to investment, and obviously one of the areas where um, uh, there is the potential for growth, uh, one would hope, is in hospitality, but we have a very particular licensing system which prevents effectively um, new pubs ever opening because, you, you, I don't know if you're aware of this thing called the surrender principle, which limits the, the creation of new licenses. Um, we have passed an amendment, my amendment, he says humbly, to the, um, to the licensing <laughs> bill to, to review it. I don't know if that's something that you that think... That should have been a declaration of interest, by the way, sort of, uh, of Mr. O'Toole. I'm just wondering whether you think there is a... Um, first of all, whether you think that in terms of broadening our rate space in towns and cities, that there's something there, that, that, that in one sector that op could operate as a unique kind of ceiling on our ability to broaden the rate space. I mean, there is no, for example, limitation on the number of news agents... Uh, that can now, obviously, alcohol is a controlled substance by definition. It's it, it's licensed in a strict way, and that's correct. But other areas um, that that uh, the sale of petroleum is, uh, you know, involves a degree of um, regulation. Um, but there's no there is no legal prevention on creating new petrol stations if there's the market demand for it and it's deemed to be uh, acceptable. So I'm just wondering about that. Basically, whether you think that would uh, there's a, an interest there in broadening the rate space by allowing new hospitality premises to open if an independent review were to find that were the way to go. Um, well, I think very briefly, we, we haven't looked at this. Um, I was aware of the, the, the surrender principle. Um, I, I would suggest that as we seek to continue to develop our tourism industry, for example, and we want to uh, bring more people into, uh, into Northern Ireland, um, allowing more flexibility for the, the market to dictate the number of, of licensed premises uh, rather than be set with the fixed supply system that we, we currently have um, would would have would have some merit. Okay, in that case, I was just close by saying, can I encourage you, Gareth, and, and yourself, Owen, to participate in, you maybe, in fact, get the tender, help be bidding for the tender to do the review, um, uh, when the department goes out to it for the independent review, but can I, if you're not, can I certainly encourage you to participate in and give evidence to that review? Happy to provide evidence, certainly, yes. Okay, thank you very much, sir. Gareth Owen, thank you very much again, as usual, and no doubt we'll be talking to you again soon. Thanks very much indeed. Keep safe. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Thank you. Cheers. Um, we're due to the next scheduled session at... 3.15. They're not all here yet. So. so do we want to go to the next item and then uh, come back? Yeah, let's do correspondence. Tim, if we move on quickly and look at sort of correspondence, just bearing in mind the time we've got. If we move to item, uh, and we'll probably not get through it all, but uh, moving to correspondence, uh, correspondence index on page 9.1. 16 received items of correspondence on page 278. Uh, first one, 9.2 to 9.3, Ministerial Directions. Members asked to note correspondence at page 283 from the Public Accounts Committee and from the Department of page 284 regarding Ministerial Directions. The Department indicates that directions relating to managing public money will be published on the Department's website after discussion with the Public Accounts Committee. Other directions, 
e.g. legislative directions not relating to managing public money will not be published in this way. It is not clear whether this other form of direction will be published at all or will it be published in departmental annual reports and accounts. I think uh, my concern with this is that ministerial directions are ministerial directions and they should be open and transparent because if there's been issues about ministerial directions, it doesn't matter whether it's finance or it's policy-related issues, they should be done. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Matthew. Uh, Mr. Thank you. I, mean, for, I should have declared another interest in that this. I was involved in the discussions that led to this. In fact, I think it was I was the person who asked the question. Um, ministerial directions were not being collated. We found out when we asked about the all the ministerial directions that had arisen during COVID that the Department of Economy had, I think, about half a dozen that literally hadn't been sent to. Uh, the Comptroller and Auditor General. So there was a significant issue there. Now there is a, a reasonable explanation for why it was to do with capacity and the amount of work that was being done in that department. Um, but I think it is um, uh, worth. Um, I think it may be one for us, or maybe even indeed one for the, for the Public Accounts Committee, to ask why there is this differential being made in terms of regularised publishing. Um, uh, but it wasn't good that they weren't being like so. For example, the cabinet office. You can go to a section of the cabinet office website which has a list of all ministerial directions that didn't exist here. Yeah. Um, and will exist now, but I'm not entirely clear why there's an exception. And, and I'm sorry, I'm quite, I'm particularly nervous about the fact that they're making a distinction between legislative directions and executive directions. They should all be considered in the round that all the directions, ministerial directions, should be available for, particularly for uh, departments, uh, for committees to be able to scrutinise. Um, so, Jim, I just seen you come up there. Do you want to make a comment? I think we're just adding into the spotlight. No. No, it's just frozen up. Okay, then, uh, members, if we're content to copy the correspondence to the Public account, Accounts Committee and to write to the Department seeking an explanation of the nature of legislative directions and other directions, i.e. e.g. what an executive direction, and seek clarity as how and how they're published, can we agree to this? Agreed. Uh, moving on to the next one, 9.4 to 9.5. This is one I've declared an interest in, but I don't think it's significant. Members asked to note at page 287 of correspondence regard, regarding provisions in the main estimates for commissioners for ministerial standards. I make a declaration that I'm a member of the Committee for Standards and Privileges. The Department explains that although the function of investigating breaches of the ministerial code is to transfer to the Commissioner for Standards, the Executive Office maintained these funds as headroom. Presumably, in the case of the panel, was not was to be repurposed. Members asked to note at page 291 a direction from the Committee on Standard and Privileges to the Commissioner of Standards, applying to all complaints regarding the Ministerial Code from 22nd of March 21. The direction sets out the Commissioner is obliged to advise the Clerk of the Committee on Standards and Privileges regarding complaints and provide a report to the Committee on any investigations, etc. Are we content to note? So noted. Uh, moving on to 9.6, decarbonisation of agriculture. Members are asked to also note at page 304 copies of an exchange of correspondence between the Department and the Committee for the Economy regarding a proposal for a study into the decarbonisation of agriculture. Relevant slides have not been included. Are we content to note? Noted. Uh, 9.7, Assembly Women's Caucus Gender Budgeting Research Paper. Members are asked to consider at page 309 an Assembly Research Publication into Gender Inequality and Gender Budgeting forward by the Assembly Women's Caucuses. I'm asking members to content to write to the Department and ask whether gender budgeting is under consideration or if existing Section 75 protections preclude the need for gender budgeting. Are we agreed to that? Great. 
Item 9.8, NIPSA, Northern Ireland Civil Pay Deal. Members are asked to also note at page 327 correspondence from NIPSA on engaging with the Committee on the Northern Ireland Civil Service Pay Deal. Are members content to note? Uh, sorry, go ahead, Matthew. Uh, content, uh, ch uh, Chair, other than to say, sir, I, um, uh, I had spoken to NIPSA about some of this, and they did have um, particular concerns, I think, about their ability, not necessarily with us, but their ability to um, properly flag to us some of their concerns about the way the department had communicated and handled pay negotiations. So I think it is um, important that we are able to um, uh, ensure that we're getting relevant evidence from them in a timely way. I think the last time we took evidence for them, they were only able to talk about it. Now, I think we had other important things to, I think the VEA, the VEA scheme we were talk mostly talking yeah. about. But, um, I just think it's important that we're able to, to take evidence from them on these on pay issues. Yeah, we could do that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Are we agreed? So, so, Chair, sorry, just to get that. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Apologies. Sorry, Chair. Just to suggest then, given what the member said, uh, then for the clerk to write to NIPSA and ask them to write back to us with some details yes. of the issues that he mentioned. Yeah, I think so. And then it would be for us to, to, to decide, yeah, to decide yeah. when to. I mean, obviously, it's unlikely to be before recess now. Yeah. But. Okay. Great. Uh, Northern Ireland Civil Service Partial Retirement, an interesting piece of correspondence. Members are asked to consider at page 328 a departmental response regarding partial retirement of the Northern Ireland Civil Service that indicates around 1,500 civil servants are partially retired and also claiming their pensions. Most seem to be at junior grades, AO1 to SO, but there are small numbers of grades 7, 6s and 7s and above. The number of applicants appears to have dropped during lockdown. No analysis has been undertaken on the impact of full retirements and promotions. The Minister has asked the Northern Ireland Civil Service HR to review this policy across the whole of NICS. Members have previously agreed to raise the issue in the autumn with NICS HR following the Public Accounts Committee consideration of capacity and capability in the Northern Ireland Civil Service. Therefore, are members content to revisit this matter in the autumn? And I understand the Minister is taking an interest in this as well. If I may, Chair, yes, I would. And I, but I just think it's important to say that. Uh, I mean, I don't know if there's any way for us to get a, in advance of the autumn, to get a sense of how that compares with other comparable jurisdictions or other, you know, just as a, I mean, like the UK civil service, for example, home civil services is called the, the like, fifteen hundred is mm -hmm. getting on for it's more than five percent. It's about seven, eight percent of the total Northern Ireland civil service is on partial are partially retired. First glance, that seems like a hell of a lot to me, particularly whenever there is a critical challenge in terms of lowering the age profile, because we have basically have you know a potential cliff edge. So that would seem to me, I, it seems to me, a striking number to be. I think may I make a suggestion if the committee are happy that we write to the department to ask them to do a comparison with uh, across the rest of the Home Civil Service. And it might be useful, therefore, for them to give a comparative to do that, because those figures will be readily at readily at hand. Okay, are we agreed? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, item nine point ten, Presbyterian Mutual Society. Members are asked to note at page three three seven a departmental response regarding the Presbyterian Mutual Society, stating that the department does not have policy responsibility for this area. Advises that the Minister for Economy is considering a related paper, which is to be issued to the committee and the committee for the economy. Are we content to note? Noted. So noted. Department for the Economy June Monitoring Round paper. Members are asked to note page 344 correspondence from the Committee for the Economy providing a copy of the Department for Economy June Monitoring Round paper. 
Members may wish to note a number of FTC easements relating to University of Ulster, Belfast Developments, Invest NI and the Science <coughs> Park. <coughs> Members might also note the awaited allocation of over £40 million in capital for Project Stratum. And you will also note that the Northern Ireland Audit Office's report on sort of broadband provision within Northern Ireland and whether it was value for money or not. Members, are we content to note? So no. noted. Uh, use of red diesel in private pleasure craft. Members are asked to note at page 351 the departmental response regarding the use of red diesel in pleasure craft. The department appears to have advised that the United Kingdom government has unilaterally decided to delay the prohibition of the use of red diesel in Northern Ireland. It is also indicated that HMRC asserts that 40% of diesel use in private pleasure craft is for non-propulsion use. Accordingly, a 40% uh, deduction on duty on the use of white diesel is now to be made. Thus, it is argued that the imposition of the ban on the use of red diesel from the 1st of October 2021 will have no adverse cost impact for private pleasure craft users in Northern Ireland. It's worth saying, Chair, just as, as in, I mean, this has obviously caused us a bit of uh, amusement and uh, per, per, perturbation, if that's a word. Um, I would imagine that part of the reason why, I, I don't know, but I would imagine part of this, why this may have been a, um, one of the provisions in the protocol may have been to do with inland waterways. We had a, a thing and, you know, so that may, I don't know if that's why, but that may have been, a, you know, the fact that you have uh, pleasure boats that move up and down the Shannon and Urn. Uh, uh, so I don't know. But, that, but it's a question worth asking. I, that, that would seem to me to be the most a logical explanation for it. Are we content to note? Content to note. Okay. And you're not advocating a field trip for us all going down the Shannon Urn waterway to uh, monitor. Well, I don't know if the if we could, you know, I, I won't. I won't give MLA's an even worse name. But Diesel usage, good. Matt, Matt, you. Sorry. As as I, uh, just, just to come in on that, I do have a pleasure boat <laughs> near <laughs> the but in the south of Ireland, it's green. No, that's right. Yeah. The diesel, yeah. It's not red diesel, it's green diesel. Okay, move on to the next item. Uh, uh, Northern Ireland Office, New Decade, New Approach Funding. Members are also asked to note at page 364 a response from the NIO, indicating that a range of initiatives, the Veterans Commissioner, Mental Health, Addiction Centre Centenary Commemoration, covered by the forty million of unique circumstance money and new decade new approach is unchanged, and that the breakdown of the funding allocation was agreed by the First Minister and Deputy First Minister in January. I think I would quite like to write to the uh, TEO office and the office of the First and Deputy First Minister and ask for a breakdown of those costs because we've been looking for those costs for some considerable period of time. And to discover that uh, the First Minister and Deputy First Minister are aware of them, I think that would be appropriate if we were agreed. Agreed. Moving on to uh, item number 14, departmental response main estimates. Members are asked to note at page 367, departmental response in the main estimates, including information on financial transactions capital. Are we content to note? Noted. Note. Uh, item number 15, financial reporting departments and public bodies bill NI. Members are asked to consider at page 372 a departmental response in the Financial Reporting Departments and Public Bodies Bill Northern Ireland. The department appears to clarify that sole authority of the Budget Act can be used for sums of up to £1.5 million, or any sum provided the expenditure lasts less than two years. Now, bearing in mind we have already seen a black box that has the equivalent of £1.5 billion in it. There does seem to be a large degree of latitude being granted to the what the terms by clarification of sole authority. Um, 
Do we have any thoughts on this? Mm, okay. Uh, therefore, are members content to share the delegated powers memo with the examination of statutory rules? To write to the arms length bodies listed seeking their views on the financial reporting bill before the 3rd of September 21, and to publish this information provided in any other related correspondence on the committee's website. Are we agreed to this? Agreed. Sorry, Chair, is the committee also content to write to statutory committees plus the Public Accounts Committee plus the Audit Committees just about the bill? Um, just it's by way of what committees usually do this to sort of drum up business for their yep. for their call for evidence. It's just a normal thing if that's yeah. okay. Yeah. And are you content for me to do a short video message on completion of this uh, meeting? Great. Thank you. Uh, item number sixteen: Energy Efficiency Building Regulations. Members asked to consider at page four hundred and twenty-six the very lengthy correspondence from the department regarding a consultation which it may launch during the summer in respect to the building regulations Northern Ireland twenty twelve. Amendments to technical booklet guidance to Part F, Conservation of Fuel and Power, as per the briefing the Committee received in April. The regulations would introduce a significant change to building regulations, with extra costs to developers estimated at $193 million over 10 years, but savings for householders of 100000 per annum. And if I got my figures correct, I think we've got somewhere close on 790 odd thousand sort of uh, households and uh, properties that might eventually um, uh, relate to. It is, it is a major uplift to, to regulations, and the committee was briefed about this in yeah. April, and so I think the departments were worried that they were going to launch the consultation during the summer and thought members might be um, surprised, so they're, they're giving us uh, early sight. But I think it's important pages. that this gets out there and we get on with it. Are members content to receive an oral brief and reading summary of responses uh, following the consultation? And that will be later on in the autumn if we're still here. Great. Yep. Uh, page, uh, item number 17, Minister of Finance, letter of congratulations. Members are asked to note page 630 correspondence from the Minister congratulating Keith. Welcome to your appointment as Deputy Chair of the Committee. Are we also sort of content to note? All agreed. Agreed. Yes. Okay. Thank you. And composite response. Members asked to consider the composite response at page 631. Are we agreed? Agreed. Right. If we can move back to uh, the item on the agenda, which is Northern Ireland Protocol Expert Advisors, item number seven. Do we have David Graham and Ronan up? Or can we bring David Graham and Ronan up? Hello. Hey there. Yay. Hi, David. Afternoon. Hi, Graham. Hello. Hi. Uh, hi, Ronan. Hi there. Hi there. Apologies for doing this, but we've had a few spotlight issues today, so we just want to make sure we're sort of all all in tune and, and ready ready to roll the, the rest of it. Um, uh, team, the, we're receiving joint oral evidence from a panel of expert advisors on the Northern Iron Protocol. The session is being recorded by Hansard. The clerk's briefing note is page 115. Witnesses' briefing papers are at page 117, 127 and 134. Responses from the Department for Finance and the Department for Economy and the Northern Ireland Protocol on the UK Internal Market Act is at page 138. Correspondence from the EU Affairs Office of the Internal Market Office Consultation and Cabinet Office Correspondence on Common Frameworks is page 152. I'd ask each of you to speak for five minutes, 
and then we can get stuck into uh, sort of Q and A if you're content to do that. And David, can I ask you to um, sort of kick off first? Uh, a declaration of interest. I sort of I know David and I know David and Graham quite well. I don't haven't yet had the opportunity to know Ronan as well, but I, I do know the other two. And I think we can already work out how the conversation is going to go after this anyhow. But over to you, David. Okay. Um, thank you very much, Chair, um, for the invitation to, to speak to you t today. Um, I've submitted a uh, piece of written evidence there, and obviously happy to answer any questions um, arising out of that. Um, for those of you uh, who don't know me, I am David Finnow, I'm Professor of European Politics at Queen's, um, with a background in European integration and the politics of the European Union, particularly in terms of treaty reform, enlargement, and its external relations. Um, certainly since the mid uh, point of the last decade, I've been following the uh, UK-EU relationship, um, the Brexit process, and more recently, the arrangements for the protocol. Um, I view that very much as something in the context of the EU external relations. Um, Sorry. In terms of its... Sorry, you, you just, we lost you for just a second there. Can you hear us okay? I can hear you, yes, now. Okay, so, um, yes, so I'm currently coordinating a three-year academic study into the protocol and its implications for governance in, in Northern Ireland. Um, we're, as part of that project, we're monitoring implementation of the protocol, tracking public opinion and engaging with stakeholders in trying to develop understanding of the issues um, that they are facing and also potentially some problem, uh, some ways to approach some of the problems which are being um, raised. We're also trying to promote um, uh, informed public debate on the protocol, um, very mindful of the fact that there will be the 2024 consent vote. Um, as I indicated, I set out uh, some comments in response to the um, uh, focus of, of today's discussion in, in the um, evidence that I've submitted. Um, the general point I would want to make is that even though we're focusing very much on the protocol here, the implications of the protocol um, are not simply due to the protocol per se, but the context in which it's being operating, uh, being operated, um, and that is particularly the nature of the UK's withdrawal from the EU and the various choices that have been made around the relationship which the UK um, beyond the protocol is com is pursuing with the European Union. Um, therefore, uh, some of the, where there are particular challenges around the protocol per se, um, a lot of the challenges have to do with the wider UK-EU relationship uh, and the fact that the UK has decided not to remain in a customs union with the EU and has also not dis has decided not to remain in the in the internal internal market. Um, as I say, I'm happy to pick up on any of the issues which I've raised in the paper and possibly responses to some of the questions you may have. Okay. Right, Graham. Right, uh, th thanks for this invitation. Um, I thought I'd been asked to speak for 10 minutes, so I'll, uh, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll try and cut down to five what I, no, what Graham, I was going you, to say. You, you, speak as, you speak as long as you need. We're, we're, we're not as time compressed, and it's important that we hear the evidence. Okay, thank you very much. Um, the UK government under Boris Johnson now views the protocol as what the Chinese uh, call it, an unequal treaty, and, and in my view, they're correct to do so. The protocol was accepted um, by the present government in October 2019 under conditions of acute political disarray and, and something that we might uh, call a parliamentary civil war culminating in the Ben Act. 
which essentially gave the EU carte blanche to name its own terms. Not surprisingly, the EU, egged on by Dublin, took full advantage of this disarray and imposed terms for a uh, UK-EU trade agreement, which was maximally advantageous to themselves and to the Republic of Ireland and maximally unfavourable to the integrity of the UK and to Northern Ireland Unionists. It is this agreement that the UK government would now like to renegotiate and at a minimum uh, wishes to agree major reforms. It's unclear uh, if the government fully understood the consequences of the protocol that it signed in 2019. Lord Frost has recently said that no one could have anticipated the chill effects on GB firms supplying Northern Ireland businesses and consumers. And the refusal of a range of firms in GB to continue their previous business arrangements in supplying Northern Ireland customers are a key part of the negative impact of the protocol on the Northern Ireland economy, alongside rules, either EU rules, either banning uh, the imports of certain foods and medicines or imposing costly requirements for veterinary and other checks and certificates. It's not obvious, uh, I, I think, to, to many people that the protocol as currently operated is consistent with several of the aims actually listed in the uh, preamble to the protocol. These include, and I quote, uh, a shared aim of avoiding controls at the ports and airports of Northern Ireland to the extent possible in accordance with applicable legislation. Secondly, impacting as little as possible on the everyday life of communities in Northern Ireland. Thirdly, having regard to the importance of maintaining the integral place of Northern Ireland in the UK's internal market. Once the protocol came into operation last January, it soon became obvious that these statements meant rather little in practice. Now, although there is allowance for an assembly vote uh, on the protocol after four years, most unionists don't regard this as an adequate realisation of two of the other statements in the preamble. Firstly, that there should be a process to ensure democratic consent in Northern Ireland to the application of union law under this protocol. And secondly, reaffirming that the achievements, benefits and commitments of the peace process will remain of paramount importance to peace, stability and reconciliation there, there being Northern Ireland. The key rules uh, on customs and trade regulations are contained in Article 5 of the protocol. This is the critical article. Many people initially read the customs and regulatory barriers, read these, uh, these rules as applying to only to goods at risk of entering the EU via Northern Ireland. Article 5 mentions the at-risk concept four times in its two pages. And only a very careful reading reveals that this concept applies only to tariffs and not to technical or SPS regulations. Since the Trade and Cooperation Agreement of December 2020 rules out most tariffs and quotas, the at-risk concept largely drops out. It remains uh, only for goods not meeting EU rules of origin. And but the protocol also stipulated that NI producers should observe EU regulations, including custom rules on goods entering Northern Ireland. All of this is pretty obscure in the protocol, to say the least. In fact, nearly all of it appears uh, it comes from just two sentences um, 
both of which are, are in themselves pretty obscure. The first sentence says, Article 5 uh, in brackets 3 states that legislation as defined in point 2 of Article 5 of Regulation EU TEU 925 in brackets 2013 shall apply to and in the UK in respect of Northern Ireland. What that actually means is the entire EU customs code applies to Northern Ireland. And this single sentence, this single obscure sentence, establishes the outer border of the EU at the coast of Northern Ireland. Well, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't explicitly say so. Now, the second um, sen obscure sentence is, the provisions of union law listed in Annex 2 of this protocol shall apply to the UK in respect of Northern Ireland. And if you then go to Annex 2, it lists 288 EU regulations covering the whole range of goods trade, including chemicals, medicines, food, agriculture, and many other things. The important thing is that these customs rules and these products regulations are nowhere applied to goods at risk. Instead, they apply to all goods, and this is what's really causing the problem. And this doesn't seem to have been widely realized in Northern Ireland until after the protocol came into operation. Promises were made, and the promises have largely been kept, uh, I, I think, uh, that Northern Ireland businesses would have unfettered access to the wider UK market. But little effort was made to point, up, point out the fact that these promises referred to Northern Ireland businesses having unfettered access to selling into the into GB markets. Um, but not uh, businesses, but not GB businesses having access to Northern Ireland. So the access referred to here is only to the sales made by Northern Ireland businesses, and not to their purchases uh, from GB. That's not unfettered. Unionists have been strongly criticised for not realising that their support for Brexit implied a border in the Irish Sea. But the border in the Irish Sea wasn't a necessary con uh, consequence of Brexit. There are at least three other options, even if we accept no physical infrastructure at the land border in Ireland. The first of these is alternative technology. Uh, the Prosperity UK organisation published a major report on alternative arrangements for the Irish border uh, in, in a report uh, chaired by Greg Hans MP and Nicky Morgan MP. The report advocated the use of trusted trader status and checks away from the border supported by tracking technology on cross-border consignments, technology that Fujitsu, who were part of the commission, said was available. Um, alternative arrangement, alternative technology is the first one. The second is a border in the Celtic Sea. Uh, it would be possible to, uh, to have a border, uh, between a sea border between Ireland and the rest of the EU, uh, so that illicit goods could be prevented from entering the continental EU by checks at ports in the Republic of Ireland. Uh, that would obviously cause, cause political problems, but whether those political problems would be any larger uh, than those already caused by the sea border in Northern Ireland is a matter of debate. And the third option is, uh, and, and, and the, the one I, I think of uh, most practical interest, is mutual enforcement. Mutual enforcement entails that each side, it's the uh, UK and EU sides, make a reciprocal legal commitment to enforce the rules of the other side with respect to trade across the border and only to trade across the border. Each side 
maintains autonomy, but commits to the enforcement of whatever rules the other seeks to impose in respect of goods crossing the, the land border. It would be unlawful and perhaps even a criminal offence for a trader in Ireland to export a good to Northern Ireland or vice versa without complying with the latter's rules and duties. HMRC would collect the duties in Northern Ireland for the benefit of customs, uh, Irish customs authorities, for instance, and, and regulatory compliance for exports would be enforced in Northern Ireland. Uh, and, and, and indeed in the south for uh, goods coming the other way. So, leave us and um, where should we go now? In my view, the EU should recognise that the protocol is now too controversial uh, and damaging to both the economy and politics in Northern Ireland to survive in its present form. Its need to protect the single market can be achieved with much lighter arrangements than in the current protocol. Firstly, it should allow the at-risk principle to be applied to SPS regulations as well as to tariffs. Secondly, it should recognise UK food and medicines regulations as being equivalent to its own. Indeed, at present, they're exactly the same as its own um, because they, they were its own. Um, uh, and maintain this equivalence for as long as broad regulatory alignment remains in place. If the EU refused to cooperate in reaching a reasonable compromise, uh, and there, there are signs, I think, in the last week that there are um, moves towards uh, some compromise, not maybe enough, but some. Um, but if they refuse to go further, then what should the UK government do? And I, I, I think there are probably three steps in, in, in ratcheting up the, the pressure. Firstly, is to initially extend, extend grace, grace periods further whether unilaterally or not. Uh, secondly, the second step would be to invoke Article 16 of the protocol, uh, which allows either side to take measures to avoid uh, difficulties of uh, societal disruption or the diversion of trade. Clearly, there has been a diversion of trade. Uh, to invoke Article 16 uh, until uh, a further compromise is reached. And in extremists, the third step, I think, would be to replace the protocol with a scheme of mutual enforcement, at least on the UK side of the border. We, of course, couldn't, uh, couldn't foresee the EU or the Irish to, to do that on the other side, unless they wanted to. It's, it's recognised, I think, that any or all of these steps could trigger a, a trade war. Careful diplomacy and transparency should limit that danger, but in any case, the imbalance in trade between the UK and the EU means that the EU is well placed to ride out a trade war, if it should come to that. Um, talk about trade wars should only be rhetorical threats as a means of negotiations. Um, and it's really now it's time for grown-up politics. The EU, sorry, UK can agree reasonable measures to protect the EU single market. But in turn, the EU should not turn a molehill into a mountain and should respect the preamble in the protocol in making any measures as painless as possible for Northern Ireland. Thank you, Chair. Cheers. Thanks very much indeed, Graham. Ronan? Oh, hi, there. Thank you very much. I also thought of 10 minutes, but I'll try and um, go quickly. So uh, thank no, you very Ronan, much. Ronan, take, take, take your time. It's too important. So, so uh, please sort of take your time. Thank you. So. I want to talk about three things to you today. Um, 
I want to look just at how the protocol is operating and how it operates more generally and how it fits into a bigger picture. So the first thing I want to talk about is the idea of visible and invisible barriers under the protocol and in Brexit. Uh, the second, I want to look at three vulnerabilities of the protocol system and then look at possible changes uh, and how they fit into the broader scheme of things in Northern Ireland. My name is Ronan McRae. I teach and research on EU law and uh, constitutional law in University College London. So I'll be looking at EU law and constitutional aspects. So the first thing I'd say is, look, given the sensitivity of constitutional issues in, in Northern Ireland, it's not surprising that the need for checks uh, under the protocol, the need for checks on goods coming from GB to Northern Ireland is controversial. And you can see why unions might feel that this is moving Northern Ireland into the kind of economic orbit of the Republic, uh, possibly kind of easing towards the United Ireland. But I'd be quite skeptical about whether that's actually the case, um, because I think that through the protocol, which I, I, I remind whether it's obscure or not, it was jointly drafted by lawyers on both sides. But, um, but the key point is that in relation to goods, it's true that the alignment that there was between Northern Ireland and the Republic pre-Brexit has been maintained at the cost of some greater economic distance between Northern Ireland and Great Britain, the rest of the UK. But in relation to services, which is actually a bigger part of the economy, barriers between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland have increased. And because go um, goods are not, uh, services are not physical objects, that those barriers are often invisible, but it doesn't mean that they're any less real. Because pre-Brexit, uh, freedom to, uh, EU law on freedom to provide services provided great kind of limitations on the degree to which obstacles could be placed in the, in the way of firms from UK or in the North, um, operating the Republic and vice versa. Those guarantees no longer apply. In addition, rules around free movement of people and the changes to those mean that, uh, for instance, the very large population of EU nationals, non-Irish EU nationals living and working in the Republic used to enjoy fairly unfettered freedom to come and live and work in the North. That's no longer the case. Could uh, make it more complicated for cross-border um, employers. And that's also in addition to the more broader loosening of administrative, economic and legal ties between the Republic and the UK that Brexit entails, and the consequent increase in uh, the distance and ties in some areas between the North and the Republic. Just a small example, like under EU law, um, under the case law of the Court of Justice, all national law has to be interpreted in the light of the objectives of EU law. As the UK will diverge legally, uh, over time from the EU, this means that Irish courts in the Republic, for example, Irish law will be subject to different interpretive influences uh, than UK law. Previously, Irish courts used to generally cite and often relied on British uh, cases. That will no longer be the case. Same is true of broader administrative structures. The gap between Irish and British regulatory standards will grow. Uh, it'll become the kind of previous default option that often within between the UK and Northern Ireland, Republic of Ireland, administrative structures are pretty similar. Irish authorities just often cut and paste British ways of doing things in their legislation. That'll be increasingly uh, difficult to have as, as a default option. So just to conclude, first point is just that it's important to recognize that while increased visible economic barriers between the North and GB have attracted a lot of attention, actually the arrangements established by the protocol uh, involve a series of steps 
some of which create greater distance between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK, and some of which create greater economic and regulatory distance between the North and the Republic. Now, I'm going to quickly talk about three vulnerabilities of the system. So the first vulnerability of the protocol, I think, is the need for cooperation. You know, definition of what goods are at risk is done by the Joint Committee of EU and UK officials. But above all, uh, the key thing, I think, is to realise how sensitive this issue is also for the EU. Under the protocol, UK officials implement the, uh, implement the protocol. UK officials guard the border of the EU single market. And that's a massive concession by the EU and something the Union, particularly um, a lot of member states are not that invested in, the, in this situation in, in Northern Ireland. They're really worried about the integrity of the single market. Because remember, the single market is the core function of the EU. It's its most important activity. The EU has arrangements with a series of countries that have partial or conditional access to the single market, but none of those arrangements involve letting the officials of a third country um, police the border of the single market, which is what the EU has conceded in the protocol. Law is what has always been central to the European integration project. All the academic studies talk about integration through law as being the European Union's model. The fact that the EU is a single legal system and its laws directly effective is what turns the EU from what would be an international talking shop to quite a powerful body. So I think that any approaches that seem to say to the EU, forget about law, we'll all do it on trust, are not going to get very far. The Union is very sensitive about the centrality of law, very sensitive about the integrity of the single market. If you're trying to imagine an analogy, it's like the UK outsourcing one of its core functions like the NHS or the status of the royal family to the officials of a third country. The UK would be extremely sensitive at monitoring how those officials carried out their job, their, their task. So I don't think just saying take it on trust is going to work for the EU. Um, I would think there is a vulnerability of the system. Second vulnerability is, is enforcement. Enforcement protocol is very EU-centric, very strong. Um, you can take cases to court of justice and those rulings are directly implemented. However, um, if Article 16 is invoked in order to with, kind of withdraw from parts of the protocol, the enforcement mechanisms under Article 16 are much weaker. It's, about, it's all arbitration, potential to impose um, financial penalties or retaliatory, retaliatory steps by each side. That's a lot weaker. So I would think that the enforcement of the protocol has an Achilles heel in the form of Article 16. I think that what Graham said is, is probably true about that. Last point I'd make is... We're not clear long-term how the, how the protocol is going to work. Is it, it could be a golden opportunity for Northern Ireland. I think a lot of people say that. Free access, or almost free access to the UK market for selling, very privileged access for goods to the EU market. So it's possible big benefit. One worry, one thing you have to watch out for is you could fall between two stools because Northern Irish goods law will be EU law, will be made by the EU legislature. Northern Ireland services law will be made by a combination of Stormont and Westminster. And often goods law and services law will be designed to dovetail with each other. Because you can imagine sometimes you might sell a computer and a service kind of for taking care of the computer breaks down. So you'll have to think of clever ways to ensure that Northern Irish interests are represented in the EU legislative process. And also just to ensure that the two, the laws on services and goods in Northern Ireland do dovetail together properly. Last thing I want to say is about 
the nature of any potential changes to the protocol. And I think you know some people have said that some elements of the protocol, particularly the, the, the fact they vote on the assembly and whether to exit the protocol, the fact that that vote is done by a simple majority rather than cross-community consensus means that this is in tension with the Good Friday Agreement and the need in that agreement for cross-community changes, uh, consent for on divisive matters. However, I'm not sure that that is justified. The Good Friday Agreement did institute a regime where controversial changes could only occur with cross-community consent. But as we all know, the Good Friday, those who wrote the Good Friday Agreement never envis envisaged the UK leaving the EU. Brexit meant that controversial change in the status quo was inevitable. In the absence of cross-community consent on what form what that change would take, both with the change being inevitable, action had to be taken and compromises had to be made. If Brexit had had to wait for a cross-community agreement in the Assembly and what form it would take, it just wouldn't have happened. The protocol put in a series of intricate compromises. The UK government compromised on the, on the economic unity of the United Kingdom to get a meaningful Brexit. The EU compromised on the integrity of the single market to stop a border, border infrastructure on the border with the Republic. Unionists find themselves living with, the, with Northern Ireland GB barriers in relation to goods and customs matters. Nationalists find themselves living with new invisible economic and regulatory barriers between Northern Ireland and the Republic that are going to grow over time. Nobody got everything they wanted. And I think there's limited utility in pointing to the one part of the protocol you dislike in isolation and demanding its removal. As a compromiser uh, package, changing one element of the protocol will inevitably mean rebalancing in other areas. You know, useful critique requires recognizing the compromises made by each side and balanced solutions that recognize the legitimacy of each side's interests. Brexit was always going to mean large-scale change in the British-Irish and the North-South relationship. And if you recognize the legitimacy of both identities in Northern Ireland, change in one direction was always going to be balanced by change in the other direction. The system established by the protocol is only one part of the wider EU-UK post-Brexit relationship. The protocol is going to need a lot of cooperation and good faith to function. It involves a really complicated interaction of administrations and judicial bodies with UK officials applying EU rules and enforcement provisions that mix the European Court of Justice and arbitration. If that good faith isn't there, or if the protocol ceases to function, the fact is that the underlying need to make North-South and EU relationships work is not going to go away. And some deal that takes priorities and the priorities of both sides is going to be required. So I think I'll leave it at that. Thank you very much indeed, and thank you very much indeed. And before I open up to the, the team, and I will say to everybody, I realise that sort of the protocol uh, creates a considerable degree of uh, a heat as well as light, and so I would ask you to respect that when we are sort of putting the questions as well. But it's a question to all three of you. Uh, bearing in mind uh, what we've already said, and as the protocol sits, and may evolve uh, if there aren't substantial changes for it. Uh, where do you see the role of the Northern Ireland Assembly actually is in monitoring? Uh, you've already seen, uh, sort of, Ronan's talked about the sort of uh, juxtaposition between sort of services which will be Westminster and Stormont and goods that will be Brussels. Uh, where do you actually see a role for the Northern Ireland Assembly and the Northern Ireland Executive? And where is the degree of accountability and responsibility that we as elected representatives
can show to Northern Ireland and the Northern Ireland economy. Is that for anyone who, who has done? So, sort of get stuck in. Um, actually, so go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, I, I went last, so I'll go last. I, go, I have to go last again. Um, happy to, to, to follow the same, same order. Um, I, I think, uh, Chair, you, you hit upon a really important question, which isn't necessarily sufficiently developed with it within the protocol. The one role that we do know that the Assembly and the MLAs will play will be whenever the democratic consent vote is, is called. Ultimately, it is going to be for the MLAs to decide whether Articles 5 to 10 continue to apply. Um, but what happens before then is not really developed within the, within the protocol, and from what I can see has not really been developed in how the UK government intends scrutiny to operate um, and what involvement there will be for, for the uh, Assembly. I think there's quite an important piece of work to, to be done there to begin to ensure that MLAs are in a position where, come 2024, they can vote in an informed manner on the on the, on the Articles 5, 5 to 10. But also, I think it's really important that um, the uh, Northern Ireland officials and executive uh, members' engagement with the various bodies of the um, uh, withdrawal agreement monitoring the implementation of the protocol is, is such that they, they do take on board and reflect the views of, of the, the Assembly in, in whatever they're presenting at, at those, those, those meetings. Um, so I think, yeah, there's, there's a role there also, I think, in what sort of scrutiny um, the Assembly can actually take of both the legal development of the protocol, because it is dynamic, um, and also what role it can play in monitoring the activities of the Joint Committee, Specialised Committee, and the Joint Consultative Working Group. So I think um, there's scope there, I think, to be working out what arrangements need to be put in place. So, for example, should there should uh, the committees be able to call on David Cross, for example, uh, as the UK co-chair of the Joint Committee to, to attend uh, before before it? Um, should there what, what sort of reporting mechanisms should there be from the, the Joint Committee to the, the Assembly? on the activities of the Joint Committee. The Joint Committee recently signed off on an annual report. Okay, is that going to be presented to, to, to the committee there? Um, and I think there's also a role to be played in monitoring what's going on in terms of the proposals coming forward for um, new EU legislation or amendments to EU legislation, which either could, in the first case, or, or will apply to Northern Ireland under the protocol and ensuring that the Assembly has sight of those, or can have sight of those. I'm not aware that necessarily the mechanisms have been put in place to, to arrange for that. Okay. Uh, Alec Graham Ronan. Thanks, yes. Would you like to win next? Um, I agree very much with what David just said about calling David Frost. I mean, David Frost is essentially negotiating on behalf of Northern Ireland, and the, the, the Assembly should have the... Um, uh, should have the, the, the power or the ability uh, to call him and, uh, and question him. Question him. Um, more generally, I think there's a clear role for monitoring, um, monitoring both public opinion and economic consequences of the uh, of the protocol, uh, so that both the assembly and the public in Northern Ireland are are well informed uh, about what's actually hap what's happening. Unfortunately, on public opinion, we're in a, a, a situation where there's a huge um, gap between different polls on key controversial questions uh, uh, and that I think would need to be uh, need, need, need to be dealt with um, for instance between lucid talk and the the Northern Ireland life and time survey in, in particular 
Uh, on economic consequences, I, I think we need more untimely data on trade diversion. Is trade being diverted? Are Northern Ireland firms uh, and consumers being, uh, being greatly disadvantaged? We've had recent data, for instance, which shows a, a very large increase in trade across the border, across the land border. Uh, we don't know really what's happening so much across the sea border. Um, but the data across the land border seems to be contradicted by the traffic statistics. So that there's, there's no increase in lorry traffic across the border, but, but uh, the, the southern trade statistics show a big increase in the, in the value of trade. Um, services trade. Uh, I think which Ronan, uh, Ronan mentioned, uh, very important. We don't really know what's happening there. The Department of the Economy commissioned uh, a, a study before the protocol, the protocol was signed uh, on the potential impact of services uh, trade in, in Northern Ireland. And that said, if there was no deal, and I think essentially there is no deal uh, on services, if there was no deal, there would be quite dramatic reductions in service sector trade. Uh, in things like architect, legal, legal services, accountancy, all sorts of other things. Has that happened? Is it, is it happening? Uh, I've, uh, I've certainly read nothing and seen no, uh, no figures on this. So the, the, there's quite a big monitoring job to be done. Uh, I, I think that the, uh, the Assembly and the Executive could well be getting on with quickly. Okay. Um, so I think I agree with a lot of what's been said. Um, in the Brexit process in general, I think for, for devolved bodies, they have had a kind of rude awakening in that many of the areas that were were in the past governed by EU law were devolved, particularly like things agriculture and things like that. But negotiation between the UK and the EU are a reserve matter, which then tends to cut the devolved bodies out of the equation. So that's been difficult. And we've seen litigation with the Scottish government and Welsh Assembly about on Brexit matters because of that. So that does raise problems. Now, Northern Ireland is in this ongoing situation where unless the protocol is abandoned, it, it's good law will be determined by the EU. Now, what I think, so there's currently things they have to do, probably the Northern Ireland Executive and Assembly Office in Brussels needs to be monitoring developments in goods law, probably need to up upscale whatever representation people working on that you need to be very carefully monitoring what's being proposed and um, there is a problem in that you can monitor but only member states ministers will be sitting in the council which is the most important part of the legislature you know it's easy to lobby the european parliament any lobby group can do that and the northern Ireland assembly could do that um needing a voice in the council is different i imagine that the north south ministerial council and civil service contacts could be used to go on to the Irish government to put forward Northern Irish um, views, but I can also understand that that is also not, might be a, a, an option that may not appeal to some, to all communities in Northern Ireland. But there is, there is, there is definitely an ongoing issue in the protocol in making sure that Northern Ireland's voice is heard in relation to an important section of legislation. But it's not insuperable. I think you know a lot of regions have offices in Brussels. They're very active. Uh, I'm at, you know the European Commission is interested in the Northern Irish situation. So I think there will be the Northern Ireland will have ears that will listen to it in Brussels. I do think um, one thing that the, the the more that this the higher up the news agenda this story goes, the less helpful it is for Northern Ireland because. Um, 
most member states are not that involved. They're already frustrated at the amount of time this has taken up, and they're worried more about the integrity of the single market. One, when, when the protocol is bubbling along on page 20 and nothing much is happening, they turn a blind eye to it. When their attention is drawn to it, they are, they're, they're worried around the integrity threat to the single market increase. So you know, keeping the situation calm is, is, is not a bad idea for all sides. Uh, last two points. I think some trade and trade, some change in trade patterns is inevitable. That's what Brexit means. You know, if you if you change the rules and you leave a trading block, it will have consequences. And the most difficult point is now when the chain when the supply chains are changing to adapt. So it may be that issues will ease in the future when other arrangements change and they make a Change in services may be slower. You know, the Irish government make, in some areas can unilaterally make the changes easier by, like for instance, recognising the right of Northern Irish lawyers or English and Welsh lawyers to practise in the Republic. But they, are, they have, um, for instance, there are some signs that the, the, the solicitors are now uh, Irish body is requiring British firms to have a physical presence in, in, in the Republic, which they didn't do beforehand. So there can be ways to eat the difficulties, but they they may not. Um, and, the, and the issue is now that EU law will no longer prevent the imposition of those kind of regulatory barriers. Okay. So the final question I have before I open it up as well. The, the Northern Ireland Assembly has a huge issue with openness and transparency, and there is a definite feeling that there's a lack of democratic accountability. Sort of what you've just outlined uh, makes the opportunities for openness, transparency, and democratically accountability significantly less. And we haven't really discussed sort of the role of the ECJ either. So, you know, unless what sort of mechanisms do you think? And we've heard about sort of um, sort of Northern Ireland committees, uh, committees of the Assembly having sort of um, greater interest in what's going on. But can you envisage any stage where there would be an opportunity for the Northern Ireland executive to actually have a physical seat at the table? So when we're dealing with issues that deal solely with Northern Ireland, because that's what we are here to do, that we would actually have a voice either within the Euro with the European Union or indeed with the UK. Perhaps, Chair, if I could come in on this initially. Um, two points to make. Um, the first relates to the joint consultative working group, which is a unique arrangement put in place as part of the institutional arrangements for the implementation of the protocol. Um, this provides, okay, seems quite bland on paper, but information exchange and consultation. Um, I think there's quite an important opportunity there for at least officials um, involved in uh, the implementation of the protocol to be liaising on on a very very regular basis with eu officials in terms of identifying what issues are coming down the line which affect the protocol but also reporting back in terms of okay what's the implement what's the what are the realities of the implementation um on, on the ground and how might those be taken into consideration by the eu because as part of that that body the european commission is obliged to refer all those comments coming through from from uh, the uk in respect of northern ireland to the relevant bodies of the european union okay 
So there's a, there is a mechanism of sort there. I'm not saying it's at all perfect, but there is a mechanism and that needs to be exploited. The second point I'd make is if we go back to the very first draft of the withdrawal agreement, there was a, a provision envisaged by the European Commission which would have allowed the United Kingdom in respect of Northern Ireland to attend at invitation, albeit on an ad hoc basis, meetings of groups within the Commission, within the uh, potentially within the Council, within the um, various agencies and bodies of the European Union, where those bodies were discussing matters of relevance to the implementation of the protocol. Now, that proposal, which was in the original draft version, was eventually dropped in favour of the Joint Consultative Working Group. But I would certainly argue, given the precedent of um, the countries in the European economic area having such, such access rights, that uh, the UK should be pushing for something similar. Um, now, there's obviously concerns on the EU side about providing UK official um, to particularly represent Northern Ireland because they may use it for wider UK interests to be promoted. But is there an arrangement whereby you could possibly have observer status for officials from Northern Ireland to attend those, those various meetings? Okay. Either Graham or Ronan? Okay. Uh, sorry, yeah, yeah, if, uh, I, I agree very much with what uh, David has just said. I think it's unfortunate that uh, we often get our best information on what's going on from people like Tony Connolly of, of uh, RTE, who seems to have very good contacts with uh, with the EU diplomatic service. Uh, and this perhaps comes comes back to the earlier point we made about being able to grill David Frost or perhaps other British officials. Um, the Assembly ought to be in direct receipt, I think, of much better information on on what's going on day to day than it uh, that, that it actually is. You know, we, we shouldn't have to get it through the Irish Times or through RTE. Um, that, that's, it. that's the only other point I'd make in, uh, in, in addition to what David just said. Okay, uh, I agree also with what, what David said. Um, there are channels which can be used. Obviously, they're not as good as having a veto in certain areas, which but non-member states will never have a veto. So it's as good as we can get. Um, I would also just say one other thing about that. Um, one of the uh, features of the protocol that some people dislike is the fact that legal disputes in relation to the areas covered by the protocol are covered by all the normal mechanisms of EU law, which means that local courts, national courts, can make direct references to the court, European Court of Justice in Luxembourg. So, um, and those, those rulings are directly effective. And you know, if something is done in an area covered by the protocol that we that the Northern Ireland Executive thinks breaches EU law in some way or breaches then, actually those provisions could be quite useful because you can take court cases directly from the High Court in Belfast to the Court of Justice challenging the legality of any acts that impinged in an unlawful way in, in areas covered by the protocol. Okay, thanks. Okay. Thank you. Uh, thanks, David, Graham and Ronan for your information. Um, I'm just looking at the summary, Graham, on your briefing paper you provided and the first line of it is very telling. The Irish Protocol has proved damaging to the Northern Ireland economy and to political stability in Northern Ireland. So that's your words, Graham, not mine. But I'd just like to ask David and Ronan, what's their thoughts on Graham's first line and his summary? David, do you want to go or go? You go for it, I don't um, So I suppose what I would say is that Brexit, 
was always going to require some degree of unsettled situation in Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland is linked economically to the, UK, the rest of the UK and the Republic of Ireland. Brexit um, changed and upended. Oh, yeah. It doesn't say Brexit, it says protocol. I'll repeat it again. The Irish protocol has proved damaging to the Northern Ireland economy and to political stability in Northern Ireland. It doesn't say Brexit, it says protocol. So, and the question is, is, do you agree with Graham's opinion? Well, actually, no, because uh, I think, yeah, well, I, I, here's an academic answer. Yes and no. So, uh, the, the Brexit was... It's an academic, Bre it's allowed to. Brexit created a large degree of disruption and damage politically and economically in Northern Ireland. The Northern Ireland Protocol mitigates some of that damage. And as you know, as I said in my presentation, some of the changes it brings put bring Northern Ireland closer to the Republic. Some bring it closer, uh, further from the Republic and closer to GB. So I think it was the Protocol is a way of managing the inevitable disruptions that Brexit was going to cause. There was no cost-free Brexit available for Northern Ireland. Um, David? I would, I would have a not dissimilar um, position there. Okay, I, there has been disruption. Um, there was always going to be disruption, and that disruption was probably greater than we ever anticipated for two reasons. One, because of the thinness of the trade and cooperation agreement, where the UK government did not mitigate some of the potential impacts of the um, protocol for North, North, Northern Ireland. So, for example, no SPS regulatory alignment would be one of the issues. Um, the second reason um, we saw a lot of disruption was because uh, so much of the reality of what would be needed on the 1st of January was not known until Christmas Eve. Um, now, this is not to say that the protocol has not caused disruption, because clearly it was going to, because you, you would have with its provisions alongside the TCA, new checks and controls on the movement of goods from Great Britain in, in, into Northern Ireland. But I don't think we can say that um, all, or by any means that, that all the damage is, is any damage and all that damage is due to the protocol alone. It is all part of a Brexit process of which the protocol is, is one part. Um, moreover, we have seen as part of the change in sub supply route, change of some of the, uh, uh, the various supplies coming in into Northern Ireland, some organisations, businesses may have benefited. Um, it's too early to say. Um, plus, also, we've got the COVID um, situation. Uh, as well. These are, these are early days, but um, we cannot get away from the fact that Brexit by its nature was going to mean disruption, and the disruption is probably far greater than any of us ever anticipated because of the nature of the Brexit which the UK government chose to pursue. Okay, David, just you referred to obviously the, the impacts, and Graham referred earlier, but I think the term he used was impacting as little as possible to the community of Northern Ireland. I hear other politicians and other parties, and I don't know what constituency they're in or if they'll be out in the constituency, because it's the majority of people in my constituency is being impacted day and daily by the protocol, day and daily. Uh, for example, a, a, a constituent texts me all the day that uh, he purchased sofas and beds coming out of the mainland UK. It's now up 100%, 100%. De delivery costs, and those delivery costs are not going to be reduced because of protocol. Uh, you've, you've, you've the list. You've heard it. You've, you've art, Amazon deliveries, haulage, foods, animals, dogs, medicines. This is a fact. It's not the, the minimum amount of people in Northern Ireland. It's the maximum amount of people in Northern Ireland. So therefore, we talked about damaging politics to survive the protocol. It's destroying politics. 
And I think the British government is not listening. It's destroying politics. So a question to you, from what you hear in the ground, and I suppose it's a question to David Graham and Ronan, is it only the small amount of people that's been affected by the protocol, or have I got it wrong, and I only live here, and I only listen to people every minute of every day? So it is, only, is it only the small amount that's been affected, or the large amount? I would say that a large number of people are being affected by Brexit because we were all going to be uh, affected by Brexit because of the fundamental change in the relationship between the UK and the EU. There was never going to be a disruption-free free Brexit. Um, as I said already, um, yes, the protocol will have caused um, a number of difficulties, will have caused, would have impacted, but the nature of that impact and the extent of that impact is highly conditioned by the wider UK-EU relationship. Um, okay, we don't want to necessarily go back to his, historical um, di discussions, but if you took the Theresa May version of the, the, the protocol, which has seen the United Kingdom remain in a customs union with the EU and the UK government commit to regulatory alignment in an ex in extensive number of areas, and then pursued a very close trade relationship with the EU, possibly involving um, alignment on um, SPS regulations, etc., then we would have had a significantly less disruption um, in terms of the movement of goods from Great Britain in, into Northern Ireland. Um, to reiterate, any implications we're seeing today of the protocol have to be seen as the implementation of the protocol in the context of Brexit and the chosen relationship which the UK has adopted with the EU. Graham Arona. Uh, perhaps I could just come back very, very briefly on a, on a couple of points. Uh, firstly, Ronan's point that um, a diversion of trade was always uh, going to happen uh, with this arrangement. And I mean, I, I agree with that, but it doesn't sit very well with Article 16, which says if there is a diversion of trade, then either party can take, take measures to counter that. Um, so it's not obvious that, that the people who drafted the, the protocol actually had such a clear view as, uh, of this as, uh, as Ronan might suggest. Um, what David has just said, well, of, of, of course, I mean, if we hadn't have had Brexit, we wouldn't have had this problem. If we'd had a half-hearted Brexit or a very different sort of Brexit, we, you know, the problems would have been mitigated. Um, but we are where we are. This was a national democratic vote, and the, the UK voted to, uh, to, to leave the EU. I mean, the point I was trying to make in my initial presentation were that there were clear alternatives but these were rejected, and the e and the UK was in too weak a political position to uh, to to fight its corner uh, on this, and is now having to fight a sort of rearguard uh, rearguard action. But I think that that, that remains the position, and, and unless this is significantly changed, um, it, it does look as if the UK government will will significantly change the protocol either unilaterally or well, perhaps unilaterally. Yeah, so I, so I, I keep coming back to that, that you can't excise the protocol from the broader Brexit and say everything would be fine if this one piece of the wider machine was just removed because the wider machine can't operate at all its part. Um, you know, the um, Article 16 does talk about, you know, the serious societal disruption, and um, but it doesn't cover any diversion of trade. There will never, I mean, the point of Brexit in some ways to change uh, trading patterns. Why, why, does it say that? why does it say that, Ronan? Why, why does it say specifically, you know, if there is a diversion of trade, it doesn't say serious diversion of trade, it just says diversion of trade. Why, why, 
Why is it? But, I mean, you couldn't interpret the argument that saying that trading patterns will be frozen in, uh, will be frozen duty and can't change at all. I mean, the whole point, and it's also the case that a general provision like that is implicitly uh, uh, qualified by the very specific provisions around uh, maintaining alignment with goods to avoid uh, North, South, uh, Northern Ireland Republic border infrastructure. Because, I mean, the, the, the agreement we got came from the divergent priorities of each party. The EU made it a priority to avoid a North, South infrastructure on the border at the cost of some compromise on the integrity of the single market. The UK made it its top priority breaking free of the regulatory orbit of the EU, and they placed a higher, a higher priority on that than the economic unity of the United Kingdom in relation to goods. Now, that's a political decision that was made, but and you can, I, I can see why people would criticize that decision, but once that decision is made, certain consequences inevitably flow from that. So I, I, and I do understand why people are frustrated that that political decision was taken, but you can't retain that political decision to diverge in a regulation, uh, to, to diverge, um, maximum divergence between the UK and the EU, and then not have the protocol unless you are willing to have the north-south um, border infrastructure, which all parties uh, accept that they wouldn't have. Okay. Okay. Thanks very much, today. Thank you, gentlemen. Jim. Mr. Alistair. Just one euro sceptic. That seems to be where we are today. Uh, I wanted to ask um, Dr. Gudgeon something because he seems to be the only one of our, our witnesses who comes with it to this in solution-seeking mode. And I wanted to ask him about mutual enforcement. Would mutual enforcement remove the obscenity of regulation without representation? Um, yeah, did, uh, interesting but difficult question, I, I, I think, um, especially since I'm an economist and, and, and not a lawyer. Um, but, yeah, mutual enforcement means that the UK and Northern Ireland enforce, enforce their own rules and only on exports. So it's only saying, I mean, it's only enforcing, you know, what is a WTO rule anyway, that you, everybody has to observe the rules of the, uh, of the market of the country that they're selling their goods into. I mean, if we sell goods into China or Indonesia or anywhere else, we, we have to observe the, uh, the, the rules and regulations of those countries. So it's just a way of saying that, look, we, we, we will do this on behalf of, uh, of the EU, instead of having this complex border in the in the Irish Sea and having to check everything that comes into Northern Ireland, whether it's going likely to go into the Republic or not, um, we, we we will accept the. Of course, we will accept the EU's rules on anything exported into the EU, uh, and, and we will we will enforce those uh, the, the, those rules. Um, so since the UK is doing it, it would be part of UK law, um, strikes me as reasonably democratic, I think, and very different from the situation whereby we have EU regulations uh, in, in Northern Ireland, which are decided in Brussels without any democratic input uh, or real, real influence from, uh, from Northern Ireland. So I, I, I guess the answer to your question is, yeah, yeah it would be very different. Yeah. Which brings us to the real heart 
of the constitutional objection to the protocol that seems to so disinterest the two professors, namely the fact that a vast quantity of law which shapes matters pertaining to our economy is no longer made in our own country, but is made in a foreign jurisdiction overseen by foreign courts. Could I ask either of the professors, can they give me an example of another region of any country in the world where without the consent of the people so governed, laws which affect a great proportion of their economy are made not in their own country, but are made in a foreign jurisdiction over which they have no say, which they cannot amend, and which can only be enforced even against their will. Is there another example of that tyranny anywhere? Do you want to go first, Ronan, or shall I? Okay. Um, okay. Sorry, no. Um, okay. The, the, there are other examples. Um, we have the European Economic Area arrangements whereby um, Finland, sorry, uh, Norway, Liechtenstein, and Iceland um, are committed to follow the EU rules regarding. By consent, by consent of those so governed. I'm asking for an example. No, Is there they, a region anywhere sorry, where without sorry, the consent of the gent, people gentlemen, they are governed Jim, by Jim, foreign David, laws? Jim, David, through the chair. Okay. The chair, let's keep this sort of uh, sort of nice and academically civilized. Okay, so if we can, David, if you could give your answer then, and Jim, if you could just wait until sort of it, uh, uh, David's finished speaking. Okay, the, the European Union has a number of relationships with uh, non-member states, um, and particularly those within within Europe with European non-member states. You often find arrangements whereby there is regulatory alignment with the European Union law, or there is indeed some cases of harmonization with EU law. And those commitments see those countries take on either existing levels, existing examples of EU law, or indeed future EU law in a dynamic manner without those countries having a the say in the adoption of those laws at a European level. We see that in the case of the European Economic Area regarding the full extent of the single market, whereas in the Northern Ireland Protocol sense, it is only the free movement of goods um, related to acquis and also some acquis related to the single electricity market. In the case of Turkey, we see it in terms of elements of the, of the customs acquis. In, in the case of Switzerland, they have an autonomous uh, adoption process whereby they decide to, to take, take that on. Um, so, yes, I would not say that the example of the protocol is unique in, in this respect. There are other examples out there as well, and we see oh, it also in agreements right. between the EU and those countries seeking to come into the European Union. Would, would you kindly address my question? Is there an example anywhere in the world of a region governed by laws they don't make themselves where that region has not consented to being subject to foreign laws? So you All saying the examples that you give within the European economic area are in situations where Norway and others assent to that. Northern Ireland is now governed by laws we have not assented to, cannot change, cannot vary. Is there another example anywhere in the world? And how do you, as a professor of politics, begin 
to reconcile that to fundamental democratic uh, principles. I've not seen sort to reconcile it. All I've been trying to do is answer your question. If you're looking to, if you're getting to the point where Northern Ireland per se has not given its consent to the, the protocol, then you are correct. But the UK government, and the UK Parliament have given their consent to the arrangements which are in the within the withdrawal agreement in the protocol. But not, not for people governed by those laws. No, I, I take that point that no, in turn, that not in fundamental conflict with basic democratic principles that you should not have regulation without representation, should not be subject to the laws that other people make in which you have no say. Sure, that is so elementary that anyone should be red-faced to embrace such a concept in the 21st century. I think, I think, Jim, that is that that's moving beyond uh, that is moving beyond asking a question of uh, an, an academic witness and uh, it, using my sort of constant refrains I do on occasion. But this that is uh, so noted. Uh, is there another question you wish to ask, Jim? Well, uh, I'm disappointed that the uh, I wasn't allowed to ask that question, but there is another question. I want to explore the issue pertaining to. Northern Ireland's position when the UK makes a trade deal and Northern Ireland's position when the EU makes a trade deal. Because it's very clear when the UK makes a trade deal, Article 4 uh, allows participation provided those agreements do not prejudice the application of the protocol. And when the EU makes commercial arrangements, they do not Northern Ireland would not have access to the trade preferences contained in EU third country agreements. Is that correct? And if so, isn't that a lose-lose situation for Northern Ireland? My understanding is, Chair, that, uh, that, that that is the correct interpretation of what we have with, with the protocol, um, that the UK, that Northern Ireland producers will have access to the trade preferences that the UK secures in trade deals, but it's not necessarily automatic that Northern Ireland producers or Northern Ireland will have access to products coming in fr from those countries. Um, it does depend on the extent to which those the arrangements align with those provided for in the, in the protocol. In the, in the case of the Northern Ireland getting access to EU trade preferences. Um, the understanding was that during the negotiations that was an option, um, but it wasn't necessarily pursued. Um, and I think it's, it's one of those things which, if the protocol is to survive, it may be something which could ameliorate the situation whereby Northern Ireland is, does have access to um, EU trade preferences, but that's something which the UK government would have to seek from, from, the, EU, from the EU. So it is a lose-lose situation. Well, it's, it's not guaranteed that the that Northern Ireland will have access to the e, e, EU, um, tr um, uh, tr sorry, to, to preference to goods coming into North, Northern Ireland from, from third countries. Access to the third country markets of uh, third country markets secured through UK trade deals is open to Northern Ireland. It's a question of imports. Okay. Thanks, Jim. Okay, uh, Sir Pat. And uh, thank you to uh, to the expert uh, panel there for uh, for uh, the briefing papers. Um, I have a question for the panel. 
And I also have one just specifically for Rowan McRae at the end, Professor, at the end, if that was possible, Chair. So what I want to ask is, you may have heard, the, the panel may have heard, that according to the new former, or the now former DUP leader, the Northern Ireland Secretary of State assured him that the UK government will bring forward significant changes to the Northern Ireland Protocol. Can any of you speculate to what these changes might be, please? Uh, I mean, w w what I read on this is, is, is that Mr. Poots wasn't offered anything that isn't in the public wasn't in the public domain already. So I don't think there's anything secret or or extra, as far as I understand it. But I'm not. Uh, I'm obviously not privy to uh, uh, private conversations. If I could come in there. Chair, um, I think we need to be, differentiate here between changes to the protocol per se and changes to the way in which the protocol may be implemented. Um, I cannot see at the moment anybody either um, um, proposing changes to the, to the protocol, um, but the focus seems to be on how the protocol is interpreted in terms of how it's going to be implemented. And there we know there's been a range of discussions ongoing about um, how the the protocol may be implemented, how some of its provisions may be interpreted, whether that's in terms of the medicines question, whether that's in terms of the end of the um, grace periods, um, whether that's in terms of how you apply SPS rules and what the expectations are around the the, the risk principle which the which the EU follows. Um, but so so yes, we, we we probably will see some changes in. Terms of expectations about implementation, but are not seeing at the moment anything which is actually going to change the protocol itself. And nothing significant. Um, it, that that's difficult to say because what one one could argue that uh, um, if the UK got the concession out of the EU that it is looking for, and the EU gets the concession out of the UK in terms of SBS, mm -hmm. then it could be significant. Um, um, we're not privy privy to where those negotiations are at the moment. Thank you. Um, so without any inside information at all, I just say that, you know, we have had a lot of trouble, but then there have been concessions, you know, flexibility on medicines, SBS, it looks like, uh, it looks like the um, sausage issue has had a, there'll be a, the grace period will be extended. So there hasn't flexibility when things have come to the crunch. And I just broad, more broadly, I'd say the protocol is part of the broader new UK relationship that it's in the interest of both to make work. And the EU can make life a lot harder for the UK than the UK can make for the EU. So that, and the EU is seeking to negotiate a whole load of other trade deals at the moment. So unilateral changes walking away could involve quite a high price for the UK. So I, I suspect they will avoid doing that um, if, the, if at all possible. Thank you. Uh, for, uh, professor, am I all right to come back in, sir? Yeah, you can. Uh, um, Professor Rowan, um, I watched one of your older interviews there just before I come on today, and you once said that the UK's choice was between a pointless Brexit or a disastrous economic impact. If the UK didn't have access to the single market, where do you think the UK government have ended up? And also at the end of that, I suppose I would ask you, Professor Rowan, uh, what do you think about what Graham was saying earlier in relation to that as well? Please. Well, um, gosh, always hear your own words go So I think they have definitely not gone for a pointless Brexit. They went for a, 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 a you know, a, a, Brexit, a pointless Brexit would have been following the EU rules, but not 
you know, not having a vote on them. They, they didn't do it for that. They went for a fairly hardcore Brexit, um, very little on services. Um, and I think the may, well, so that, that will probably have some economic impact on the long term in, in, in the negative. Um, it's hard to know also how things are going because COVID has messed things up so much. So what, what was caused by COVID and what's caused by Brexit is not clear at the moment. Um, but I also think that for Northern Ireland, the, 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 the rigor of the Brexit, the, the strength of the Brexit they went for also has obviously caused the issues that required some kind, some kind of protocol and, whether, and, and that is obviously causing issues in Northern Ireland now. So the political decision was made to go for hard Brexit. That's tough for people who are exporting to the to the EU, and it's tough on Northern Ireland because it, it upsets the kind of established relationships which were um, in place. And in a sensitive situation, change can irritate both sides. And do you want to? Do we just come back in? I know that uh, uh, Jim had said to you earlier. That's okay. That's fine. Thanks very much. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Matthew, over to you. Yeah, thanks, Chair, and thank you to um, all our experts here today in a very um, timely five years on from um, the referendum. Uh, can I ask, first of all, um, Graham, uh, Graham, Dr. Gudgeon, um, you've written um, several points about alternative arrangements, and indeed you touched on them uh, today. Is it still your view that um, mobile technology, mobile phone technology could be used to track movements across the land border? Um, yeah, I, I, I think it is. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert on the technology. I have to be guided by uh, other people. Uh, and, and the people I met and talked to while on the Alternative Arrangements Commission, I thought were quite convincing. I mean, one of them was a representative of Fujitsu, for instance, and he said they already have the technology. Um, and other, other, others were people like Lars Carlson, who was uh, previously head of the World Customs uh, Association, and indeed wrote the main report for the EU, the initial report for the EU on, uh, you know, on the land border in Ireland, uh, a, a report which the um, EU then decided to ignore. But his argument, and I think other senior customs officials that we talked to, what was that the way that customs checks are conducted uh, in the EU and across much of the world is, is 40 years old. It uses out-of-date technology. And I think their interest in Northern Ireland was actually to apply what they thought of modern methods and modern technology uh, on the Northern Ireland border. But they, 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 they wanted that to be an example which could then be uh, applied much more widely to the EU. Uh, so people at that level of eminence and knowledge, uh, I think, thought this was quite quite possible, but it was clear that the EU and uh, Dublin didn't want to know about it. Um, and the UK, UK government uh, under Theresa May, I think, um, really surrendered the point very early. I, I agree with what Rory Montgomery wrote, Rory Montgomery of the, um, uh, the, the Irish, Irish government wrote in uh, Fortnite magazine uh, in Belfast. He really says the whole thing was settled by 2017. Essentially, the British had given away the uh, you know, most of their negotiating cards 
and, uh, and conceded most of the things which then inevitably led to a, a, a seaboard. But the short answer to your question is, yeah, I, th I think it was possible, but because the British government at that point didn't take it seriously, it was never properly investigated. Okay, so that would be, and would that have been, just so I'm clear, that would have been, that would have largely been on the on the customs side, but that would have meant that by January past, that there would have been this technology on, I think it's about 170,000 HGV crossings a month. Would it, would it have been your view that that would have been achievable by January this year past, that um, all those 170,000 heavy goods vehicles, and I think about 200,000 light goods vehicles crossings along the border could have been could have had mobile technology with an app and full traceability by six or seven months ago well i guess the answer to that question is how early you start you know it's kind of irish answer it depends where you start from uh, really had this been agreed in 2017 it would have given you know, quite a lot, quite a lot of time to, to do that. Okay. But if it wasn't, if it wasn't possible in that time scale, then the t then the time scale could have could have been extended. And of course, there was always the option for exemptions for small traders. You, you know, people whizzing whizzing backwards and forwards across the border. Uh, you know, on a daily on a sure. daily basis. Um, so yeah, I think it was all it it, it was all possible. Okay. That would have been. Out, it, it was ruled out politically. I, I mean. Okay. And the EU and the and Dublin won this argument, I think, because they de they decided very clearly and very early what they wanted, and uh, and, and they got it, you, you know, because they were clear and uh, and determined about it. And the British government, um, I don't know if you were in the uh, in in, uh, in Whitehall at that time, but uh, I was. The British government was all, all over the place, and the negotiations were very poor. So, and even the, the, the documents always read to me, even at the time, as if they were drafted in, you know, in Brussels or Dublin, and okay. uh, annotated by the British rather than uh, originating from the British. It, it, it was a, it was a, a, a national fiasco in, in many ways for Britain, and uh, uh, and the present British government is trying to, uh, I, I think, uh, claw back what they can from you know, a very. Uh, very bad episode. Okay, but the, the, those that technology would, I think, largely have been, if I'm understanding the points you've made in the past, and, and others would have been for um, the, the customs borders that were. You, you said in a in a policy exchange paper in summer 2018 that um, uh, two things: the Northern Ireland authorities would need to retain regulatory equivalents with the EU for a range of products, including on animal health and safety. Um, uh, you also said that some controls on the Irish Sea will be necessary to control imports of animals, foods, etc. Does that mean that um, even with technology on the border to manage customs, your view is that if the UK is going to diverge in animal health standards, it would be necessary for N Northern Ireland to diverge from GB because it would be logistically next to impossible to manage a divergent SPS border on the island of Ireland? No, I, I think the main reason for that is that the island of Ireland has always been a single epidemiological uh, area, and that there's obviously great sense in that. Um, you, you know, as we remember well from incidents of mad cow disease and, uh, and, and all the rest of it, much easier to, you know, you. If you want to keep animal disease uh, off off the island, it's it's best to keep it off the whole island, not 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 to let it onto bits of the island. 
and that's always been uh, that's always been the case. Even the washing of um, soil on tractor wheels, my, my understanding is that's that's always been the case. Yeah, I mean, what, agreed. What, what, what happened under the protocol, and this may be because of overzealous British officials rather than anything the EU did, but uh, you know they. they they seem to decide that you virtually had to dismantle the tractor and, uh, you know, to, to get the soil off rather than uh, just the sort of sensible level of washing that had been done for years or decades before. It sounds like, okay, that's it sounds like then if the principle, given that I think about it's commonly agreed that about 85% of the checks that are happening at, at Larne and Belfast are related to SPS as opposed to... Um, uh, as opposed to custom time, obviously there's some grace periods still pertain, but some, the grace periods that generally still pertain are in terms of uh, food, and obviously there's a medicines grace period on which we're hoping for progress, and we need that. But um, I might understand that the principle of having, um, uh, you know, the principle of having SPS divergence is one that's, um, uh, in a sense, inevitable. If the if GV is going to diverge, it's it's that you manage that and the, the UK and EU can find solutions to managing it down via joint committees. That, would that be the right approach, do you think? Yeah, that, 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 that sounds a reasonable direction of travel uh, in, in many ways. Look, at, at present, my understanding is we have no problem at all. I mean, all the regulations are exactly the same. So the single market is in no, absolutely in no danger today. And there's no need to check anything uh, today. Okay. And uh, equivalent. You know, the EU has equivalents with uh, at least some foods coming in from New Zealand, but but has been un, uh, you know unwilling to do the same for for GB. That sounds to me, you know, kind of vindictive and difficult. Um, there are plenty of compromises and ways ways forward here. If we do diverge, even if we allow GM modified foods in, in into GB, it can be handled. I mean, GM modified food, on my understanding, get into Switzerland, for instance. Uh, and the whole thing is managed managed there. Okay. Well, this, is, this is really nowhere near as difficult as the protocol makes it appear. Well, I, I think the, um, the, the, the the principle of closer engagement is obviously an important one, um, and, and, and solving things, as perhaps Roland said, on page 20 rather than page 1. Can I just ask David, and then I guess Roland as well, on the, first of all, on the, on the services side, um, uh, Obviously, most of uh, the economies in the developed world um, involve trade and services. None of us are trading a good at the minute. We're not moving goods around by sitting here talking uh, about Brexit. We're, we're uh, part of the services economy. Um, uh, the value of that service is supposed to be able. But David, could you give some, uh, how much work is going on in terms of scoping the economic impact of north-south um, uh, divergence in services and uh, i.e. Um, sorry the, the the impact on um, uh, north-south cooperation writ large and also though i know you're not an economist david um the 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 the, the broader economic impact that's to david and then ronan and then graham you can come in if you want to hey, thank you um i wouldn't have that much to say in, in terms of what scoping it is going on at the moment. What we do know is that during the course of the negotiations, the UK and the EU did sit down and work out how North South cooperation may be affected by the UK leaving, the EU leaving, and uh, 
areas where um, there would need to be some degree of continued regulatory uh, alignment. And my understanding is that most of that has already been covered in, in the protocol. Um, but uh, certainly there is a concern as to the effect that the uh, uh, UK being outside the single market for, for uh, the EU and outside uh, free movement of services, that that will be impacting at some point in terms of both the UK as a whole, its relationship with, with the EU, but also more specifically locally, um, cross-border services um, here. Um, how you might address that, it's difficult to see. Um, although one thing I would would point out is there there is an arrangement whereby um, in the council decision Europe, the EU council decision on implementing the withdrawal agreement whereby it is possible for the UK and the and Ireland to uh, negotiate bilateral arrangements to try and address some of the issues which are arising out of the implementation of the protocol um, and it could be that there may be scope to be pursuing something there once we identify what the the effects of the of uh, brexit are on on uh, the trade to trading services on, on the island um, we'll have to see but I'm not actually aware yet as to what uh, analysis there has been done about about the impact uh, we are still um, relatively early days in in terms of the seeing the impacts of um, the UK drawing from the single market and, and uh, the customs union. Okay, obviously UK, the UK and Ireland sadly can't negotiate the UK rejoinings, the um, uh, the free movement of people, uh, UK, UK accepting um, EU citizens uh, and things like that. So, the, so, so there, there, are, there are some quite big systemic changes to the to the economic relationship out with goods that cannot be resolved on a bilateral basis. The, the, the council decision allows the the other member states to authorise the um, island um, with to pursue negotiations in areas of, of uh, exclusive EU competence. Um, we don't know how that can be in, interpreted, but I suppose one interpretation is okay. That may provide some flexibility to do some local um, uh, arrangements. And I think there's some discussion has already been had about how you might have mutual recognition of, of qualifications, for example. Yeah. Uh, that might be done under the, the uh, CTA, Common Travel Area uh, arrangements. It may be done within the context of something um, at, at an EU, EU level. Um, but uh, at the moment, it's, it's difficult to know what scope there might be within there. So, yeah, we are, we are probably looking at uh, quite significant changes coming along as, the, as a consequence of that big systemic um, change with um, the UK no longer being part of the internal market. Okay. Um, Rune, I don't know if Rune, you wanted to add anything to that? So the EU single market for services is much less complete than for goods. So uh, there's, you know, it's it's more goods are more intensively integrated. So the impact, the, the size of the economy uh, for services that is impacted is greater, but the impact is less because the exclusion from the single market is less, in some ways, less grave. That said, um, there are is also scope for unilateral measures both. In the, um, as David has outlined, the Irish government has been friendly, I think, or and certainly Irish league, like the legal profession, has been relatively flexible so far. But what I would say is where EU has integrated more intensely, and where the impact there's any, the greater the potential impact on other member states of Irish unilateral measures, yeah. the less scope be to soften the impact. And I think things like financial services. You know, the banking union has been completed. Um, member states would be very wary of letting um, British, uh, any kind of backdoor access to the single market via a unilateral or bilateral arrangement with Ireland. 
So we don't know how it's going to work, but I can imagine, and certainly in areas like finance, which is quite important to the UK, I think there'd be quite limited scope for Ireland to, um, to soften the impact. And last thing I'll just say, yeah. for services, a lot of the important things are really treaty provisions that mean that if a, if a business from the UK is trying to from the UK and sell it to another member state, and the member state had ruled that sought to exclude foreign competitors competing for business or make it difficult, he could always challenge those rules in the Court of Justice. Now that won't be possible. Mm. So British companies and companies from Northern Ireland trading into the EU will no longer be able to kind of tr to challenge sneaky domestic practices in other member states that seek to exclude them from the market. That, that protection is, is now gone. Okay. I, I mean, I, just from summing that up correctly, am I right to say, because I've struggled at times in order to try and communicate and talk about some of the services impact, but for example, you know, the, the fact that uh, regulators in Amsterdam and Luxembourg keep a gimlet eye on how uh, the financial, how the City of London is leveraging or attempting to uh, parlay continued uh, access um, uh, into the in relation to financial services. That will that's in a sense connected. To, so their desire to avoid um, the UK getting a uh, preferential backdoor into um, uh, that part of the single market uh, in relation to financial services, that has a direct relationship with the ability of uh, Bank of Ireland to employ client managers who are doing work for uh, Bank of Ireland customer Bank of Ireland to employ client managers in Belfast to do work for customers in Dundalk or Dublin. Uh, is that a fair way of putting it? Yeah, the, I think that's a fair way of putting it. Uh, they, you can't be, the, the EU will have a dim view of employing, Bank of Ireland employing people in Belfast, doing transactions in Dundalk, or then possibly on in Vienna and Budapest and wherever. Yes, that's so, that, so, so, so the impact on the All-Ireland Services economy is, as you said, invisible and subtle, but very extensive. Um, I don't know if Graham wants to add anything to, to that point, or has it been? Uh, I don't <laughs> I can just add, I don't think there is an all-island economy, you know, except in one or two areas like dairy production, uh, uh, for instance. So uh, I tend not to like the use of that, uh, that that word, which always sounds rather propagandist to me. But, okay. Um, but on, 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 on services... I, Careful what you ask I for, Matthew. I, I, I feel I know and we know far too little about what's actually happening. I mean... I think it would be quite a service if, uh, if, if this committee could get more information out of the Department of the Economy or from the, the, the various trade associations. Graham, I, 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 I'm just going to say with respect that uh, anyone doing business in, for example, Derry, uh, whose fundamental business model is cross-border, will, of course, take profound exception to that statement in terms of the all-island economy. And given, I think, it's one of the most obvious areas for economic growth for Ireland, and it doesn't mean sacrificing East-West, uh, I think it's a, it's, it's a bit of a giveaway that you see it that way. But my final question is on uh, the um, uh, two bits. One, how we deal with um, the, the challenges, the protocol, which clearly do exist, but also opportunities. Um, do you see, and this is a question for any of the experts, do you see the... Um, uh, what would be your... If you could give a, a kind of 
top tip on making the joint committee work for Northern Ireland, um, what would it be? One uh, one thing that you think could be improved uh, in terms of in terms of improving our engagement with um, uh, the joint committee, what would it be? Uh, if, 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 I mean, yes. It's really to uh, the key thing is to apply the at-risk principle to a wider set of groups uh, and then the you know, So that the, the only thing, try and cut down, cut down the number of to goods which are either destined to go straight across the border or, or are very likely to do so and to cut everything else out. So the, the famous example of, you know, anything brought in by Sainsbury's and sold in Sainsbury's shops in uh, supermarkets in Northern Ireland uh, shouldn't need to be covered in, in, in any of this at all. Okay. Yeah, Thanks very much, Anthony. Anyone else wants to come in on any of those? Uh, the, I, would just, I had that one question. So it was just about improvements, really, to, and anyone being, but it, it was just the same question to Ronan and David. Any quick suggestions for improvement and engagement? Three very quick ones. One, if we can keep this issue out of the headlines, there'll be more flexibility from the EU. Agreed. So I, the less heat there is, the better, the more flexibility there will be. The more heat there is, the more attention, the more member states will worry about the integrity of the single market. Second, engage in the long run with Brussels having a long uh, up presence to monitor good laws, make sure Northern Ireland's voice is heard. Uh, third, sell the dual access for goods because uh, to UK and EU markets. That's a real plus. It will be the only place in the EU where you can sell goods to the, to, to the EU and to the rest of the UK. That's a big plus, so I just highlight the good bits as well as the difficulties. And then David, briefly. I think Ronan took two of the three points I was, I was going to make. Um, it, it, essentially, it's building up trust, which is a foc on focusing on implementation um, and also coming to the joint committee and all the discussions with um, solutions to problems and, and ideas um, and try and depoliticize it as far as possible um, because uh, I, I think there, there is a, a, a will on both sides to, to, to make this this work um, provided some of the politics can, politicking can be taken out, out, out of it. Okay, thank you, Chair. Okay, thanks very much, Steve. Thanks. Gemma? Thanks, Chair, and thanks to our panel as well. I have a number of questions, but um, Graham, I'm going to start with you. Um, so you have a couple or a number of suggestions there, or solutions. Um, if they're viable, why have they not been taken on by trade experts or the British government or the Europeans? Well, my, my, view, my view on that, Gemma, is that the, the, the EU really want to a, a tremendous victory on this. They they, they managed to um, get a protocol agreed, which, which met all of the EU's and uh, and Irish concerns, um, and pushed the whole problem onto the UK, uh, you know, splitting Northern Ireland in, in in some ways from the from the rest of the UK, uh, and um, inconvenienced and discompopulated uh, unionists to. Uh, to a great degree. So having won that battle, I mean, they, they, they've been very reluctant to give any ground at all. I mean, it's what, what we have, we hold, uh, in, in a sense. I mean, David Frost keeps complaining um, that, that the uh, UK side in the current negotiations with Maros Sevkovic um, 
papers are put in and there is no reply whatsoever from the EU. It's not that they're disagreeing, they, they just don't get anything. First he said there were 20 areas of disagreement and they were getting very little comeback. I think his the latest statement was there were 36 areas of disagreement and still very little comeback. That's changed a little in the last week, I, I, I think. I mean, my, my interpretation is, is that the EU are pretty afraid of, of uh, communal trouble, you know, from loyalists uh, and, uh, and others. And would really like like to get this push this past the marching season now, and for that reason they're they're, they're quite keen to ex, to uh, extend the uh, uh, the grace periods. Um, so they they they're, they're giving a bit, um, and they also realised I, I think stopping drugs from GB reaching the NHS in in Northern Ireland was was going to be very 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 bad PR uh, across the world. So they get the, they're likely to give a bit on that, although we haven't actually seen the uh, seen seen the paper. Uh, but by and large, they're, they're 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 trying to hold on to a tremendous victory, and of course the uh, UK side are, are trying to find ways of changing the protocol, you know, to uh, to make it much more balanced, to get it back to where it should have been in the first place. Sorry, apologies. Uh, Gemma, I need to make a declaration of interest here. I've actually been involved in the discussions, obviously, with our uh, sort of Minister of Health and trying to get some clarity out of the EU on medicines, particularly bearing in mind that within six months' time we're going to be in a situation where many of the medicines that we use here in Northern Ireland are going to be available. And in, our, in my declaration of interest, I have to make quite clear that we've had no response whatsoever from the EU. But I just wanted to make sure that people were aware of that. Sorry, Gemma, Kirkham. Okay, thanks, sir. And Graham, the protocol also guarantees um, retention of basic human rights for people here in the north. Um, but if the protocol is binned, like you called for in your paper, how do you propose that we protect those rights? Uh, I, I'm not a lawyer, and especially not a human rights lawyer. But I, I thought those human rights were protected under under British law. These, I don't. I'm not, wasn't obvious to me the protocol added anything. Yeah, but, um, I, I well, as far as I'm aware, not all of them are protected under British law, so that's that's okay if you can't answer it. That's all right. And Ronan, um, you're next. Um, just let me. Yes. Yeah, so, Ronan, can you give? You might have already touched on this a wee bit, but can you elaborate a wee bit more on the north-south bar barriers that you mentioned? Um, and would you agree that? they're not getting as much media attention as the uh, so-called empty supermarket shelves. So, well, I mean, partly because there's more of a slow-growing phenomenon. So there's, there's two main, um, there are two main ways, I think, in which Brexit is going to push Northern Ireland and the Republic apart uh, further. So one is services, but it will, there will be additional barriers over time for Northern Irish companies seeking to do business in the Republic. That will make it, it will, be, it will get harder to do that. In the, and then if you look at it as a kind of balancing, in the same way, it is already harder to send a good from Great Britain to Northern Ireland now. So you know, just as, as I'm saying, the protocol pushes in two different ways. But yeah, it will be Northern Irish businesses looking to do business in the EU, which includes um, the Republic, are going to will no longer be protected by the free the freedom of establishment. So you'll know if they face a barrier that unfairly excludes them from the market, they can no longer challenge it in court when they could. So they will be they will be more vulnerable to kind of regulatory tricks by local authorities that will exclude them from competing with local firms. Uh, 
the free movement of people changes just make it harder. If you are a Polish person living working in Dundalk, you could easily have moved to Newry. Your employer could have moved you to Newry with almost with almost no hassle before. That would be so much more difficult. And then just as a broader divergence, because Irish law and UK law you have been pretty similar, uh, they will become less similar over time because EU law has systemic effect on how law is interpreted. And so the Irish courts will be interpreting all of Irish law in the light of EU law, and the British courts won't. So the greater the, the greater degree to which the UK diverges from EU law, the greater the, the legal differences between North and South, the more different regulation and administrative matters will be, the harder it will be then to line up to cooperate North-South, because there'll be more legal and administrative differences than there used to be. So Brexit will, in some ways, make Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, more distant from Northern Ireland over time. Okay. Yeah, thanks, Ronan. And just one more question. You say that the protocol doesn't make anybody happy, and I think that's a good point. Um, nobody sees this as perfect. But do you see it as vastly superior to the so-called solution that others have come up with? Um, and by the way, I would include the EU hates the protocol. The EU hates allowing officials of a third country to police the border of what is to the EU a very precious thing, its single market. So A, I put that. B, well, look, the protocol, I don't expect too much about the merits. The protocol is the inevitable outcome of the priorities of each side. The British government chose that more, made the decision that is more important of absolute freedom to diverge from EU, from EU regulations and things like services, and they made that more a priority than the economic unity of the UK as related to goods. If those are your policy choices, there is no, there is no alternative to the protocol. Um, the protocol is a way of managing the uh, issues that came up from Brexit, and because Northern Ireland is in a sense position, changes one way, just distance on services, legal changes, we're always going to have to be managed in some other way. And so what the only thing I would say is what you can't say is, I don't like the protocol, let's get rid of it and leave Brexit then to operate uh, in, in every other way of change. Brexit, the protocol is part of the, of the composite Brexit deal that takes account of the need to balance changes in Northern Ireland, the need to balance changes in one direction with changes in another direction. That'd be good. Yeah, thanks, everyone. I completely, I completely understand. And David, you'd be glad to know I'm. I don't have any questions for you. So that's my questions, Chair. Thank you. Thanks, thanks, Gemma. Alicia. Alicia, you're muted. Good Chair. Thank you, Chair. I was passing over leg. It took Samuel, the uh, whole discussion is very, very interesting in many respects. And uh, and at this stage, I think we nearly probably have covered our area as well too, but that I still feel that I'd like to make some uh, contribution to, uh, to what has actually happened in the discussion. Uh, one thing I'd, I'd like to go back to, that uh, constantly they're using this word democracy uh, and about the north of Ireland being taken out of, say, the European Union, which we see has been anti-democratic because the majority of people here voted to stay within the European Union. And then by the same token, we're reminded then, but this is democracy at work because it was a UK vote. Uh, the UK also elected representatives uh, to sit in their parliament, who in turn, the majority 
party was allowed to uh, appoint a government speaks on behalf of all of the UK citizens. And they, in turn, negotiated the treaty with Europe uh, in relation to Brexit. Uh, and in that respect, then we all have to just sort of accept that that is the current situation. And rather than listen to, we'll say, the type of statement then that, well, that in itself is totally and absolutely anti-democratic, or to use that as a defence uh, for uh, us having to live within, we'll say, the single market, which I'm uh, very positive about. Um, uh, I think that's a very, very weak argument, and this has been presented here today too, uh, as been uh, a reason why there's that uh, the, the people of the north of Ireland in some way have been disadvantaged and having to deal with the protocol. And the protocol is as a result of Brexit, not the other way around. Uh, I also think too that in the event of it not being a protocol, uh, if, if it didn't exist, we'd have to invent one. Have to invent one because at the end of the day, there's two different economic blocks now, in a sense, in terms of the UK and then uh, the European uh, Union in itself. Um, and that if we did have to invent one, uh, would it not be of a very similar nature to what it is that we have now at the present time? And I asked the question once again, too. Uh, it is also the case that as a result of the protocol uh, uh, and as a result of Brexit, that the Northern Irish economy finds itself within the European Union and within the UK at the same time. And whilst there has been um, many difficulties um, from the inception of Brexit, but it just hasn't really manifested itself in the empty shelves and, 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 and supermarkets. It just hasn't really empty, uh, manifested itself either in the lack of uh, medical uh, uh, equipment or anything else. Um, uh, but at the same time, that is where we're at now with it. Uh, so uh, that in itself not a really good thing for the people here in the north of Ireland. A very long tirade there, and I can lead into that, but I, I make that statement. Got a question. <laughs> and that's what the question is. Is it as a result of the protocol, the very fact that we find ourselves now with access to the European market and to the UK market, that it places um, businesses in the north of Ireland as at an advantage, and that's beginning to manifest itself as well too, but it's also very, very attractive now too for international uh, investment within the Northern Irish economy to uh, avail of that facility. Um, if, if I might just make a couple of points. I, I think on democracy, that there, there certainly is a point there that uh, that uh, trade is a is not a transferred matter. It's a UK-wide matter, and the UK negotiated this uh, on behalf of Northern Ireland. You know, but it's a bad job, and lots of people in Northern Ireland very un, un, unhappy about it. But on, on the the regulations, I think a lot of those regulations, um, others may correct me, but are uh, are not transferred matters. They would be matters that would normally be decided within the assembly. Uh, and, uh, and 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 not in Brussels, uh, and therefore there, there is a, a derogation, taking away of democracy in in that particular case. On, on the on Mr. McHugh's final point uh, about being in both markets, I mean, there's some advantage there, but we shouldn't um, uh, shouldn't overemphasize it. I, I think there are no tariffs, for instance. I mean, any anybody in the UK or indeed. Can uh, 
export into the EU uh, tariff-free. So what we're talking about is an, is, is an absence of border checks, um, but very few things are checked anyway into the EU. I think two or three percent of things are checked, usually on an intelligence basis. They're usually looking for drugs and that sort of thing. That, that's, that's why things are checked. Um, so the, the, um, the, the speed of border crossing is not, not a great issue. So it really comes down to regulatory alignment. And at present, we are, we, we are all aligned. You know, all, all British companies are still uh, observing uh, EU regulations because they haven't been changed since we, uh, since we left. Now, that, that advantage may, may grow over time and you know, might become of some importance if uh, GM crop or other things become an issue. Um, but at present, I, I think the amount of advantage is, is small. Invest NI was saying in the early months of this year that they, they, they'd had quite an upsurge in, uh, in inquiries about uh, investing in Northern Ireland, but they've gone pretty quiet since then. And I, I don't know whether those inquiries have been uh, turned into actual investments in Northern Ireland or whether the level of inquiries has, uh, has kept up at, uh, at, at the level it was earlier. I do think, by the way, um, I, mean, I have heard through the grapevine that Invest NI is deliberately keeping quiet on this because they regard it as a politically fraught um, subject. And that's something that both the Assembly and your committee could do just, just to get the information out of Invest NI what is happening. Uh, sorry, uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Dr. Gordon, Gordon, hopefully I pronounced your second name correctly. Yeah, yeah I've been yeah. thank you. Uh, that, uh, I know it's one of you alluded there to uh, not particularly liking the all-Ireland economy type phrase. I'd like to point out to you that I looked into my own wallet and uh, half of the notes in it are sterling and the other half are euros because I live on the border uh, and that we live within an all-Ireland economy. Uh, day and daily, and I'm not a businessman. I'm just a resident, as for so many other people here in this area of West Tyrone. They go back and forward across the border day and daily, and we use our currency quite freely uh, and to change quite easily. Uh, and that we're very much aware of the fact that we do have an all island economy in that respect. But in addition to that, I also then make the point it is the case that uh, over this last while, that I think it's something like fourfold that in terms of business interaction between the north and the south and the south to the north, there has been that in increase. Uh, and is this not sort of um, a reflection of how business, business will cope with the, uh, the difficulties or the problems, just in the same way as we as residents cope with the day and daily difficulty of a border being there in the very first instance? Uh, I, I mean, I, I agree with both both you and, and Mr. O'Toole that, that, of course, the, the reality is that there's a great deal of cross-border activity, especially local activity, um, you know, from, from cities like Londonderry or Newry, you know, but, but, you know, there are, what, 300 border crossings and a great deal of daily activity. Um, but that's border activity. I, I, I take the term all-island economy to mean something much grander than that. Uh, and as an economist, I mean, I just observe uh, what happens. For instance, uh, only 7% of the value of sales of goods and services in Northern Ireland cross the border uh, and are sold into the Republic. I mean, clearly, we, we, we have two differently functioning economies. I mean, as you, as you pointed out yourself, uh, that there are different currencies on, side, on either side of the border. 
there are different excise rules, which is why we have smuggling and you know, in tobacco and, uh, and fuel. There are different social security systems, different health systems, um, different company law, all, all, all sorts of things. We, we, we have two, two different economies uh, on, on the island of Ireland, but with quite a bit of you know, cross-border cross activity. So I think both, both, both things are true. It's, it's both true that we have two economies, not a single economy on the island, but it's also true there's quite a bit of cross-border activity, which we know and, uh, and, and encourage and like. Uh, and could I just make a final point, and hopefully maybe the other uh, members can comment on this as well too, uh, but that I know we all like to avoid, we'll say, or skirt around political issues and so on, but uh, rather than this being a difficulty, we'll say, of uh, economics, uh, or of business in itself, it has more to do with uh, what is often argued as, i.e., identity, politics, and so on. Uh, and, uh, and, and all of that then can depend to what extent that uh, even political parties and that want to sort of uh, whop up uh, opposition to a particular issue and uh, they actually exploit uh, an opportunity like that. And the only thing that I can say that, you know, there's been a border on the island of Ireland now for 100 years, it hasn't affected uh, my own identity and my Irishness. I am as Irish today as what, as what uh, I was at the board that was never there. Um, and that for anyone to go down that line, is that not an expectation um, uh, of, of an issue that will become emotional? And as a result of that, attempt to move it up the agenda, just as had been commented on earlier by uh, other contributors, that uh, the higher up the agenda this goes, the more difficult it becomes even then for Europe as well, too, and the much rather avoid that situation. Yeah, I think you raise an important point there, that uh, on, on the unionist side, I think a at base, a lot of the objection is, is a feeling that the protocol will facilitate or accelerate a move towards the United Ireland. And if we could only take that off the table, then I, I think the, the practicalities of the protocol could be dealt with much more easily. Quite easily. Yeah, I agree. And maybe on my general comments, would the other Conservatives like to make a, a, a comment? <laughs> I agree with a lot of actually what Graham uh, just said that you know it's a bit of both for Northern Ireland businesses plus access um, to the UK market. But if you're obviously if you're a business who buys a lot in Northern Ireland, then you have some difficulties at the moment. Um, the issue of democracy, well, the Assembly will does have the ability to leave the protocol of wishes, and that's quite an exceptional thing for, as you already know. International trade is a reserved matter, not in the Scottish and Welsh assemblies that have no ability to design their own um, Brexit to the degree that Northern Ireland has, but that's probably should be recognised. One thing I would say is that it's one thing to have the same rules, like it is at, at the moment, British rules and EU rules are fairly similar. But the key thing is to be recognised. And that's what EU law requires mutual recognition of of the regulatory decisions of other member states. Um, outside the EU, you don't benefit from that. So it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not the end of the story whether de facto you have the same rules. You have to be recognized by the EU as having the same rules. And then that won't be the case for like Northern Ireland in relation to goods. Um, Finally, on the issue of symbols, look, of course, everything is often viewed, everybody has their emotional and identity commitments, and we view 
often seemingly banal things to the to the eyes of through those commitments. But I would say there's also you as is, is worried about symbols and appearances too. And that, you know, the EU has other fish to fry. They have a lot of other relationships. They have a lot of countries that have partial or conditional access to the single market. They, there is a limit to which the, the, to the degree to which the EU can publicly give Northern Irish businesses and um, very exceptional arrangements because other countries will say, well, what about us too? So yeah. I think that's something to bear in mind. Um, but apart from that, I... And why not? Yeah. Why, why shouldn't they say, and what about us too? Well, well because would they, you wouldn't like Ukrainian civil servants policing the eastern border of the single market. They may not, you know, they wouldn't like Belarusian or any other third countries. The EU is, as it, you know, the single market is viewed by the EU as historic achievement, and they're very worried about anything that would undermine it. Uh, thank you. I think I'll, sort of, sort of, I'll come in at that point and say thank you very right, much. Right. Chair, what about David? Has David any comment to make on what, anything I said there? Uh, if Chair will allow, I, I think just to say that this um, falls short of the best of both worlds narrative, which some people uh, claim the, the protocol delivers. It is, I think, going back to, I think, a point Ronan made in, initially, this is an attempt to mitigate the disruption of Brexit for Northern Ireland, it does it. It it can only do that. It does that in a minimalist fashion, um, because it, it's very much a, a scaled down version of, of what some people were thinking a protocol might, might do in providing a particular position for for, for Northern Ireland. Um, I think we are stuck with it. Um, I can't see it moving far far away, at least for the next four four years, if not longer. The challenges on making it it work. I think going back to the identity politics question. I think one of the key challenges is to ensure that this works um, with Northern Ireland. It is something done with Northern Ireland, not necessarily something done to Northern Ireland, which seems to be a dominant narrative uh, at the moment. And that requires engagement um, on part of all parties and due recognition and understanding of the particular situations we have on the ground. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. And Thank sort of, you. I'm sorry, I'll, I'll stick in my chairman's prerogative here as the rest because the time is marching on. But thank you very much indeed, uh, David, Graham, and Ronan. And thank you very much indeed. And I think the one thing I would agree with you is that what might necessarily be on page two of Der Spiegel or Le Monde, unfortunately, always tends to be on page one of the Belfast Telegraph and the Irish News. So one of the things we do need to do is get to the point where it's on the page 20 of everybody's newspapers and media. And I think that's something we would like to do as well. But thank you very much indeed for your evidence. Thank you very much indeed for answering your questions. And I know it raised uh, quite a few emotions within the committee, but I was glad to see that we sort of kept it on track. And I thank the committee members and yourselves for your, your forbearance. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And thank we, you take, uh, thank we you. take David, Ronan and Graham off the sort of spotlight. Uh, team, just moving on now, we'll go into private session. Programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Senate Chamber, programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Senate Chamber, programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Senate Chamber, programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed.
This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound.
This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. Back in open session. Still core it. Excellent. Okay. Uh, draft forward work programme, it's page 640. Uh, due to the financial reporting bill, the bill office has estimated that the committee stage is due to end on the 2nd of September 2021. Funny old thing. Although this is a short bill and only a limited number of evidence sessions will be required, it is suggested that the committee seeks an extension so it can report around Halloween 2021. If we are content, and I don't think we're going to be able to do it in that timescale, so we should uh, look at to push it back towards Halloween. Therefore, if we are content, in that case, if the committee is content to put down the following motion, that in accordance with Standing Order 33.4, the period referred to in Standing Order 33.2 be extended to 17th of December, 20, uh, 17th of December 2021 in relation to the committee stage of the Financial Reporting Department's and uh, Public Bodies Bill. Is that agreed? Agreed. And I will sign the motion at the end of this so that we're not stuck here. Are the members content with the forward work pro- programme? Agreed. agreed. Although I just had one question, if I may, sorry, I'm not to delay anyone, but um, uh, have we had any update on, has anyone had any update on the, your colleagues um, and mine defamation bill? 
uh, and when we yeah. expect to be. Well, no. My understanding, sorry, Chair, is um, uh, the, the sponsor of the bill was informally in contact with me. He is seeking second stage uh, in September. Yep. Oh, right. So the idea would yep. be he would come with Reyes in September right. to brief us before oh, the second stage. Yes, yeah, it's, yeah. it's Mike's bill. Mike yeah. Yeah. bill. Yes. So that is my understanding. So okay. it won't be before the summer recess. Okay. Okay. Any other business? Uh, Chair, could I ask a question? Yeah, go ahead, Jim. Um, maybe I've missed this. Did the, was the committee notified of the department's launch of the consultation on proposed changes to the civil service injury benefit scheme? Yes, we were. Yes, we were. So, um, Chairperson, the uh, consultation has been launched. Uh, uh, yeah. The committee considered it about two weeks ago. Um, members were quite concerned. Uh, as I recall, and uh, the uh, department is to come back to us at the end of the consultation before any decisions are made uh, in uh, September. Um, so as uh, the chair commented at the time, the uh, increase in the payments um, largely associated with prison officers, largely associated with PTSD, mm -hmm. uh, and what are proposed are some fairly significant changes yeah, um, we to that benefit scheme. Yes. Sorry, chair. Yep. Yep. So okay. yes. Yep. Okay, thanks. Okay, thanks, Jim. Uh, team, date and time of the next meeting, uh, back in here next Wednesday at uh, 1400 and on Starleaf if we can get it to work. Thanks very much indeed, and thanks everybody for keeping with us. Well done. Cheers, Gemma. Cheers, Malisha. Thanks. Cheers, Jim. Thank you. Two or three years. Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland.